Did you know that the 4th of July is on a Thursday this year? That's going to be a full weekend of fun out on the deck, four days. But if your deck isn't what it used to be and you aren't using it for great family gatherings, you need to call my friends at All Weather Decks. All Weather Decks is a 24-time winner of the Angie Super Service Award. And they probably help one of your neighbors. Click on the map link at allweatherdecks.net. Call All Weather Decks today at 913-206-1974 or go to allweatherdecks.net and mention you heard it on 810. Call now and relax. We are back out here with another edition of the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, coming to you live from the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK for, I believe, our fourth consecutive week here. And it's fitting because it's the perfect time to be out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino. Over 45 big screen TVs out here. I'm watching college basketball. I'm watching NBA right now. i got Iowa State and West Virginia in front of me. Creighton and Seton Hall below that TV on the NBA. You've got the Boston Celtics and the Philadelphia 76ers right now. Syracuse and Florida State also on another TV. So plenty of action out here, and you can, of course, do all of your sports gambling at the Barstool Sportsbook. And I know tonight it feels like the focus is college basketball, NBA basketball, maybe a little bit of hockey. But, of course, with only a couple days away from the Super Bowl between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles, that is what we are going to spend the majority of our time on. Over the course of our two-and-a-half-hour show tonight, we'll have Joel Penfield joining us around 8 p.m. He'll be joining us in person. We'll also be talking some Royals baseball in the final hour, the third and final hour of the show tonight, Max Reaper of Royals Review, and then we'll talk some K-State basketball with Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com. But good atmosphere out here tonight. Plenty of people enjoying some drinks, watching games, putting bets down, because this is the best place in Kansas City to come out and do your live sports gambling. But let's dive right into it. This will be about a 30-minute segment or show, and then we'll have an hour-long segment with Joel talking about this big-time matchup, the final game of the NFL season in Glendale between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles, the number one seed from both of their respective conferences, Kansas City at 16-3 and after knocking off the Jacksonville Jaguars in the AFC Divisional Round, then took down the Cincinnati Bengals in the AFC title game two weekends ago, 23 to 20. As for the Philadelphia Eagles, a little bit of a different path to the Super Bowl. Now, they won the NFC East. They beat out the Dallas Cowboys, who had to go on the road for the entire postseason, but they win the NFC East pretty comfortably. Actually, one of the better divisions in the NFC this year, but they easily cruised their way to the Super Bowl on the NFC side, taking down the New York Giants after having their first round by 31 or 38 to 7, excuse me. And then in the NFC Championship game against an injury-ridden 49ers team, they win 31 to 7. If you had to ask me honestly, when looking at these two teams on paper, who is the better bunch? I'm not going to have my bias take anything into account here. I don't want to lean toward Kansas City. I know Kansas City has the better quarterback. They got the better coach in this game. But if you are speaking candidly about these two teams, you cannot deny that on paper the Philadelphia Eagles are the more well-rounded team. 
I mean, there's no way around it. They have the better defense. They have the better running game. They've got the more balanced group. They're better on special teams. They have a better number one wide receiver. I think where Kansas City has them beat, they have the best defensive player in the game in Chris Jones up front. They've got the best tight end on both sides, being Travis Kelsey. You've got Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid. Other than that, there's just too many players on Philly's side that best Kansas City's. Kansas City's a younger team on defense. They've got an incredibly young secondary. I understand you're getting luxurious need back for the cornerback room, but you're going to be having Joshua Williams out there, Jalen Watson out there, Trent McDuffie. You've got a lot of rookies you got to count on, and you had to count on them in the AFC Championship game against Cincinnati. But it's just a different team here. It's a team that I think some people are going to discredit because their strength of schedule. Uh, Philadelphia really didn't play that tough of quarterbacks over the course of their 17-game schedule, but it's the NFL. Uh, You can't apologize for beating teams in the NFL. And If we want to get really technical about only playing bad teams, there was a big stretch of the season where Kansas City played subpar or mediocre teams, and they were barely escaping by the skin of their teeth. Or you go to overtime in Houston, you need a Jarek McKinnon 20-plus yard touchdown run to get out of there with a win. You have to hold off the Denver Broncos, the worst offense in the league, in both your matchups, in Mile High and in Kansas City. I mean, you kind of play poorly against a Seattle team that was overachieving. But, of course, you had some really impressive wins and early on in the season. I still think beating Arizona in Week 1, 44-23, is very impressive. I know that... The Arizona Cardinals were not a good football team this year, but with Kyler Murray getting the big contract in the offseason, I think people had higher expectations for Arizona. And anytime you hang 44 on the road, that's impressive in the NFL. Beating the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on Sunday night football and hanging 40-plus points was an impressive win for the Kansas City Chiefs. Beating the 49ers and hanging 40-plus on the road was another one I go back to. But you can't really look at the regular season now when trying to preview the game on Sunday because most of those stats in the regular season just don't matter. In fact, none of the stats in the postseason really matter anymore. You've had a week off. Both these teams have had time to rest. Their quarterbacks are banged up. Jalen Hurts with a shoulder injury and Patrick Mahomes with the high ankle sprain. So I don't think either quarterback is going to be truly 100% in this game. But to the age-old saying in football, who really is 100% at this point in the season? I think I've got a couple of different opinions on how this game is going to go down in Glendale on Sunday. Again, kickoff will be at 5.30 on Fox, and you can listen to plenty of Chiefs coverage uh, throughout the entire weekend. We'll have a best of on Saturday. We'll have, of course, the pregame show before the game at 5.30. We'll have the postgame show with Josh Briscoe. Just plenty of Chiefs content over this entire weekend and to close out the week as well. Of course, you can listen to Sports Radio 810 starting with the Border Patrol at 6 a.m. every single weekday. But when I look at this game and I want to find ways, uh, find holes in this Eagles team, I really do struggle. Uh, I think this is a a team that can beat you in a variety of ways. Uh, They haven't really impressed me in the postseason, and that may sound shocking to say because you win 38-7 and 31-7. But I also look at the teams they were playing. They got the New York Giants who were rolling with house money. You had Daniel Jones, and say what you want about Daniel Jones, he's improved but I still don't put him as a top-10 quarterback in this league. And then, yes, you've got a a good 49ers team and a 49ers team that hadn't lost since playing Kansas City right around Week 7, but Brock Purdy got hurt on the first series of the game. And then you have Josh Johnson out there, and then Josh Johnson gets a concussion. And then Christian McCaffrey is taking snaps by the end of that game. So I kind of can think that 
score, 31-7, to a bit inflated because by the end of it, the 49ers couldn't even throw the ball. They had a running back out there as their fifth-string quarterback. So there hasn't been maybe a game or a quarter in the postseason for Philly that I've looked to and said, that's just incredibly scary. I think I look to their defense and say it is a truly overwhelming type of defense and getting after the quarterback. They've got a strong secondary. You think about Darius Slay, but up front, I think that's where it starts. The pass rush of this team, they lead the NFL in sacks by 15 uh, they have, of course, up front with Josh Sweat. You have guys like Robert Quint. Even Ndamukong Sue is a backup for that front four. Hassan Reddick headlines that front four for Philly. You go back to the Super Bowl against the San Francisco 49ers in 2020, talking about the Kansas City Chiefs, and I think that was the talking point all week long when going over uh, how you beat this team, You know how you go about attacking this 49ers defense. They had Bosa. They had Armstead. You know, they, they went after Patrick Mahomes in the first quarter and were just as heavy with the pressure in the fourth quarter. And it rattled him. But you can't really just allude to the fact of, well, if you get pressure on Patrick Mahomes, you're going to be successful. But when looking at how you can attack a team that is so aggressive up front, like Philly is, I think Philly is very comparable to that 49ers team. The only difference is I think they're better offensively. They've got Jalen Hurts. The 49ers had Jimmy Garoppolo. But when you have a pass rush in the way that Philly does, I think it starts early on in the game. I think it starts in the first five, ten minutes of the first quarter. If they can set the tone, speaking of those front four in Philly, uh, it can change your game plan. It can alter what you try to do for the rest of the game. I mean, you think about it. If Patrick Mahomes is having to scramble for his life in the first three series of the game, what do Andy Reid, Eric Bieniemy, and Matt Nagy have to do? Well, they have to adjust. You can't sit in the pocket for too long. You have to run a couple of screen plays to alleviate some of the pressure that Patrick Mahomes would be getting. And we saw that in the Super Bowl against the 49ers. Once Kansas City got a little bit more comfortable with handling that pressure and calling to avoid that pressure, that's how things can change. And if they are stubborn about it, if they aren't going to change their ways, then Philly's going to do exactly what they did to the the first two teams. That when you can get heat on the quarterback, uh, the cornerbacks, the safeties, they're not even asked to cover down the field that long. They're having to keep everything in front of them. They can cover the out routes, the five-yard routes, the 10-yard routes. But we've seen Patrick Mahomes also be very good under pressure this year. We've seen him to be one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL when blitzed. And I think that's where it comes down to, I guess, how Philly's going to generate the pressure. They are good enough to win their one-on-one battles, and I'm not sure if Kansas City will trust their tackles in Orlando Brown Jr. and Andrew Wiley to handle those one-on-one battles. They may try a couple of chip blocks with Jarek McKinnon and Isaiah Pacheco. You may bring down an extra tight end in Blake Bell or Noah Gray to help out with blocking, but it's just something you can't take for granted here. You can't take for granted on what you saw uh, last week or two weekends ago against Cincinnati. They played, I thought, pretty well. I'd give them about a B-plus in that game, speaking of the offensive line. But it's just a different group you're going at. And like I said with the stat, that Philly has 15 more sacks than any other team, the second-place team in the NFL. I mean, they have three or four guys that have double-digit sacks. So it's not just one guy you have to worry about shutting down, and and that's where I go back to the AFC West when you talk about uh, the Las Vegas Raiders. You shut down Max Crosby, you can shut down their defensive line. You go to the L.A. Charters, you shut down Bosa, or you shut down Khalil Mack, you can shut down their offensive line. With the Eagles, you can maybe take away Hassan Reddick. You can put all your focus on Hassan Reddick. It does not mean you're going to slow down that pass rush, and that is what worries me about this game. Because Kansas City, in all three Super Bowls now they'll be playing, they've dealt with an incredibly tough defensive front. We saw in their last Super Bowl, the COVID year, 2021 against Tampa Bay, 
Now they had three offensive linemen out for that game, but we saw what a defensive line can do to an offense when you aren't on the top of your game, when you are banged up. Now Kansas City has felt a lot healthier than in the aftermath of their AFC title game against Cincinnati, but still, it's healthy or not, you're dealing with one of the better pass rushes we've seen in the NFL in the last decade plus. But back to the point on how you may attack this group, how you can uh, find the soft spots or the weak spots in this Philly defense. Well, I think kind of going on the topic of that pressure, the best way Kansas City does handle their pressure is by running a little bit of the screen game. You can get Jarek McKinnon involved, Isaiah Pacheco involved. We know Clyde Edwards-Alaire is active. How many snaps he gets, I guess that remains to be seen. But that is one of the best ways I think Kansas City handles that type of pressure is when you have a little bit of the quick game going. We saw against Cincinnati for them to get going against that Bengals pass rush, which I believe is a top 10 pass rush in the NFL. Uh, They ran a lot of the quick game. They got Marquez Valdez-Scantling involved. They got Juju Smith-Suster involved in the first quarter. You know, you get Kadarius Toney going a little bit early on. That takes some of the pressure off the offensive line because they're only being asked to block for a second or two, a second and a half, two and a half seconds. But when you try to air it out early on in the game, that gives Philly time to get after Patrick Mahomes. And when he's on a bum ankle already, that can work against you, of course. So screen game to me, offensively, is how you can attack this Philly defense from the get-go. This is the best way to attack uh, the pressure coming off the edge, the pressure coming off the interior. You run a little bit of that screen game. It doesn't always have to be a running back, too. We've seen Andy Reid and Eric Bienby run those screens to guys like Noah Gray, to guys like Travis Kelsey, to guys like Kadarius Toney. And even if those guys are 80 85%, I think it's the best way to get the offense rolling, not so much with the running game, I think with the screen game, because I think Kansas City has one of the better screen games in the entire NFL. On the defensive side of things, I could sit here and say that you need to generate pressure on Jalen Hurts, but I really don't think that is the best way to go about it. That's not really the most effective way to slow down Philly's attack. I'm not sure yet if Nick Sirianni and company think that the best way to get Jalen Hurts to settle in is using those trio of running backs, Kenneth Gainwell, Miles Sanders, and Boston Scott, or if they try to go right after the rookie cornerbacks. You know, I don't think Legereus Sneed is going to be shadowing or traveling with A.J. Brown, so we're going to see another game where Joshua Williams, Jalen Watson, Trent McDuffie are going to be responsible for a handful of snaps against one of the better number ones in the NFL in A.J. Brown. What can give you confidence as a Chiefs fan is knowing that on paper they already handled their toughest matchup. I think Cincinnati was the toughest matchup they'd had all season long because they lost Legereus Sneed, because they're going up against a team that already beat them three times in a row, because there was those trio of wide receivers that had given them so many problems in those three matchups in Jamar Chase and T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd. So Philly isn't as dominant or top-heavy with their three wide receivers, but you can't you know, lose focus on Devontae Smith. You can't lose focus on a guy like Dallas Goddard in a tight end game because Jalen Hurts can expose that. Now, what I saw from Jalen Hurts in those first two postseason games was not the same Jalen Hurts that we saw throughout the majority of the regular season, a guy that had garnered MVP consideration. You know, he's a guy that can use his legs. I think he's accurate with the ball. He's got a great deep ball as well. I mean, overall, he's one of the better quarterbacks I think you would want to build around in the NFL. And I can admit when I'm wrong, I did not think Jalen Hurts was going to be an exceptional quarterback at the NFL level because, you know, he got benched at Alabama, went to Oklahoma, and, of course, he was very good at Oklahoma. But sometimes you just don't feel like somebody can ooze that type of talent to be a Super Bowl-winning quarterback. And I was completely wrong. 
I've been wrong on a handful of guys in the NFL before, like scouts have, like coaches have, like GMs have. But credit to Jalen Hurts. He's one of the more fun quarterbacks to watch in the NFL. And who would have thought, you know, a couple years ago, Lamar Jackson was the talk of running quarterbacks in the NFL. Now I'd say it's probably Jalen Hurts because he's been more successful in the postseason up to date. But through these first two games, you can see a quarterback that uh, is a little bit gun-shy, is having a little bit of a, a check-down bug, if you will. Not that's a bad thing. I mean, if you can trust your running game, not make too many mistakes, why go crazy? Why throw the ball into double coverage? Why take chances one-on-one down the field? But in that game against New York, let's start with the New York Giants here where they won 31-7. to I mean, he only threw the ball 24 times. He had 154 yards through the air. You know, he only had six yards per completion. You know, he was sacked one time. He was blitz 11. He was hurried twice. He was not hit in the game. But it was just a very average type of performance for a guy like Jalen Hurts. And you could tell with the play calling, they're trying to protect him a little bit. Not because he's a bad quarterback or they don't trust him taking those chances in the way that Andy Reid lets Patrick Mahomes take the chances. But you got to keep in mind, he was dealing with an injury for a while. At the tail end of the year, Jalen Hurts had a banged up shoulder. And when he came back, they tried to shelter him a little bit. They're not asking him to go out there, run the ball, you know, 15, 16 times a game and throw the ball 30 more. Like, that's what the Bills do with Josh Allen. They put everything on their offense on the shoulders of Josh Josh Allen. And Nick Sirianni, a little bit different here with a guy like Jalen Hurts. Threw the ball 24 times, ran the ball 9 for 34. Uh, wouldn't say a complete game, but he did enough to win that game. And I think in Kansas City you can be very familiar with that phrase because we said that all the time with number 11 Alex Smith. Didn't make too many snake mistakes. He did enough to win. And that's why I think I would give the edge to Patrick Mahomes in this game because if you put the weight of the game on the shoulders of each of these quarterbacks, I think Patrick Mahomes can overcome a lot more than maybe Jalen Hurts can. I know neither quarterback is going to be 100% going into this game, but in terms of pressure, what they've had to go through, and especially what they've had to go through so far, I mean, Kansas City, they've had two tighter games, Jacksonville, Cincinnati. Jalen Hurts hasn't had to sweat so far in the postseason. Easy win against New York, easy win against the 49ers. And then you go to that 49ers game, and that's the one maybe that stands out a little bit more to me in terms of how he played. The first series Philly had, you had that long completion to Devontae Smith, the one-handed grab that Kyle Shanahan should have challenged, which would have been overturned, and Philly maybe has to punt the ball in that possession. But there was no challenge. They go down and score on their first series of the game. That was 24% of Jalen Hurts' passing yards in the game. He was taking a lot of checkdowns. And, again, that is fine if that's the way that Philly wants to run their offense, but – I think maybe it was a little bit limited because you're playing against teams that you knew were not going to keep up with you offensively. They weren't going to win a shootout against you. Daniel Jones wasn't winning a shootout in Philly against Jalen Hurts. Josh Johnson and Christian McCaffrey weren't going to be able to throw the ball enough to the end zone and the double coverage, 15, 20 yards down the field to hang with Jalen Hurts. And maybe that's the secret weapon that Philly has. They've barely even showed much. They haven't had to show much because they've blown out both of their opponents. But in that game against the 49ers, I would just say I wasn't that impressed. Once again, only 25 passing attempts, 121 yards through the air. You know, is that good enough to win you a Super Bowl against Patrick Mahomes? I have my doubts. And I also am curious as to why maybe the offense has been simplified. You can look at it two ways. You could say, well, there's no need to throw the ball down the field. There's no need to go away from the running game if it's working. And if you're playing a team like the Giants, you're playing a team like the 49ers, and they can't score, just try to win it with your defense. There's no apologies for winning in the NFL, and especially not 
in the postseason. But Jalen Hurts hasn't shined, I think, in the way that Patrick Mahomes has in the postseason because for Kansas City, they have to win the game with Patrick Mahomes playing well. I think with Philly, they look at it and go, Jalen Hurts doesn't need to be extraordinary to win this game, even against Kansas City. Now, I think the Chiefs' defense deserves some praise for what they were able to do against Cincinnati. It's a different type of team you're defending. It's a team that is more reliant on their running game. They also have a trio of running backs that are all effective. They do have a number one wide receiver, but uh, not really a true number three in the way that Cincinnati had with Tyler Boyd. They got a number two in Devontae Smith. I think I would give the edge to, or maybe it would be a push in tight end play with Hayden Hurst and Dallas Goddard. But you're dealing with an offensive line that has multiple pro bowlers. Cincinnati had a banged-up offensive line. On the defensive side, you're dealing with a defensive front that has multiple guys with double-digit sacks. They've got a very athletic linebacking core. They've got an incredibly experienced secondary, which Kansas City just doesn't have. That's the toughest thing to assess in this game. And here in Kansas City, for people that are fans of the Chiefs, watch the Chiefs, you know, cover the Chiefs, you want to feel like, that there's nobody in the NFL that can beat Patrick Mahomes when he's rolling like this or when the Chiefs are rolling like this, 16 wins on the season. You know, and only their three losses, the only one that was really bad was against Indianapolis in week three. So they've had just an incredible run of the last two or three months. They haven't always won pretty. They've won very ugly before. But it also shows that a team like Philly, they've won with, I guess, a cleaner look. They've been more polished. And maybe that matters in this game. Maybe it doesn't. Like I said earlier, I think you can rule out everything that happened in the regular season. But you want to be able to sit down on Sunday and go, I am really confident in this team. And I think I am confident in the Kansas City Chiefs. But I think a lot of people here in Kansas City are maybe writing off the fact of that Philly had a soft schedule. They don't have a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes. Jalen Hurts is banged up. Folks, this is a really good team. This is one of the more, if not the most, well-rounded team the Chiefs have played all season long, and it's fitting. You're not going to get any weak team in the Super Bowl. You're going to get somebody that's incredibly hot, and that's good for the Chiefs. But just do not be shocked if Philly is able to dominate this game in more than a couple of ways. I think the Chiefs can win this game. I don't think you should have any doubt about that. You should still have confidence as long as number 15 is taking snaps under center for the Chiefs. But they're not going to dominate you with their running game. They're not going to dominate you with their pass rush. They're not going to dominate you with their pass defense. The only way they really dominate you is if Patrick Mahomes goes crazy. He goes nuclear in this game. And not saying he can't, but he is a little bit banged up. I know he's healthier from that game, or he's healthier than what he was in the AFC Championship game. But overall, man, I just think there's Philly. Philly has more ways to beat you than Kansas City has, which is why, if you're the Chiefs, you've got to play a pretty perfect game. You got to win the turnover battle. You got to be clean on special teams. You got to make sure that running game doesn't find the weaknesses of your defense. That's how the that's how the Philadelphia Eagles offense has been able to assert their will against the first two teams they played in the postseason. You run the ball, it opens up everything. You got to bring the safeties down. You got to bring more people to the line of scrimmage, and then it opens up play action for a guy like Jalen Hurts, who's not looking to bomb the ball down the field. He's not Jimmy Garoppolo, but he's also not a Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes at least not at 100%. And that's something I think you need to factor in here. It's a Philly team that's incredibly well-rounded, more well-rounded than the Kansas City Chiefs, but it's also a Chiefs team that has number 15, Patrick Mahomes, for them. Right now the Eagles are a one-and-a-half-point favorite in the Super Bowl on Sunday. Kickoff will be at 5.30 in Glendale, Arizona. We're getting closer and closer, and our Chiefs coverage isn't going to stop here. We just want to give you a quick preview going into this game, but for the next hour or so, 
We'll be diving into more of this game with Joel Penfield of the KC Sports Network. He'll be staying on from 8 to 9 o'clock. At 9 o'clock, we'll be joined by Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com talking about Kansas State's most recent victory against TCU and the outlook of the Big 12. And at 9.30, we'll talk some Royals baseball with Max Reaper of Royals Review. We are live from the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. I'm your host, Jack Johnson. Dylan Michaels back on the board. This is the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. This is how we do. We make a move and act the fool while we up in the club. This is how we do. Nobody do it. We are out here live at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. It's another edition of the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson. I'm now alongside Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network, who always joins us for the full hour from 8 to 9. Dylan Michaels back in the studio running things, making sure everything goes smoothly. But we are going to continue our Super Bowl preview of the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles right now, Philly is a a one-and-a-half-point favorite. I'm not sure you could find two more dominant teams from the season. I I understand you could say the Chiefs skated by a couple of times, but the Eagles also skated by a couple of times. What makes Philly really scary, though, they've got a quarterback that was an MVP consideration before he got hurt. They've got the number one defense in the NFL in terms of getting after the quarterback. They forced turnovers. Uh, Joe, I had this stat from earlier in the show that they have 15 more sacks than the second-leading team. Yeah. In the NFL. It's ridiculous. They have four guys. Think about this. Four they have four guys, guys with ten, yeah. Hassan Riddick, you have Javon Hargrave, then you have Josh Sweat as well, and you have Brandon Graham. All with double-digit sacks. Hassan Riddick, of course, leading the pack with 16 sacks. I believe Chris Jones is the only one up front for Kansas City that has double-digit sacks. Unless mm-hmm. I'm missing somebody here. I, I think so. It was Chris Jones and then... A bunch of other guys around that six to eight six range. To eight. Yeah, yeah. When you have four guys up front that can not only put pressure on the quarterback but get there, that's the difference here. Uh, they're a team that hits a lot of quarterbacks. They force quarterbacks out of the pocket. But when they get around you, they're not letting you go. We've seen that hurt the Chiefs before. It has not hurt Philly. No, and th- this is the game where Kansas City has to have their best offensive line game of the year. The Chiefs have a good offensive line. The Eagles have a great one. That like there, there's the the key distinction there along the offensive and defensive lines there. And when you have Orlando Brown, he you need him to have his best game of the season if he really wants to get paid. This is the game where he has to do it. You know, Joe Tooney, the interior is going to be fine. The tackles are really going to have to play their best game that they have ever played as Chiefs. In this game, Andrew Wiley was kind of thrown into, I think he ended up playing left tackle in that Super Bowl it might have been. Yeah. and Or no, Remmers played left tackle, he played right tackle, and that was just a nightmare. But Wiley's grown from that. He's been good this year, better than we've seen in the past. Andy Reid's going to have to do everything he can to throw chips and, you know, extra protection, and Mahomes is going to have to call his way, you know, kind of around this because they're going to send pressure. They're going to be able to get home with four at times. You just have to mitigate it happening consistently to where Mahomes is having to run for his life. We saw what ha- happened in Super Bowl a couple of years ago when that had to happen. 
You know, you have Andy Heck as the offensive line coach in Kansas City, and I'm sure that he's been in the boardroom, in the meeting room with Andy Reid, Matt Nagy, Eric Bieniemy, and going, all right, how are we going to alleviate some of this pressure? And you brought up chipping, right? I think Jarek McKinnon is a great option. Isaiah Pacheco can do it too. Isaiah Pacheco, we know how hard he runs. He's also very physical in blocking. Maybe you bring down an extra tight end, Blake Bell, Noah Gray, one of those guys. What is maybe the best possible way, though, aside from chipping, to get rid of some of this pressure? Because you know... Philly doesn't have to bring the heat. They don't have to bring six or seven guys. They can win their one-on-one matchups, but it's not just guys on the edge. It's guys in the middle. So there's nowhere you can really attack to say, all right, they're not going to pressure us here. They can pressure you from all over. So if it's not chipping, how do you go about giving Patrick Mahomes more time in this game? It's not necessarily more time. It's getting the ball out of his hands fast to miss the pressure. That's what the best quarterbacks do. That's what Tom Brady and even Joe Burrow has been really good at that this year with a bad offensive line. Just, I'm going to get the ball out, one, two, and go. And we know how good of a play designer and schemer Andy Reid is. And one of the best things he does is scheme the quick game and the screen game and use the aggression of the defense against them. If they want to just bull rush with four and try and get up the field or send pressure with linebackers, then they're just going to dump off to Jarek McKinnon and Isaiah Pacheco and little tight end screens you know, out of 12 personnel all game long and just basically just death by a 1,000 cuts. That's the best way to do it, at least right now. And then once they're able to back off, that's when the shot plays to MVS and Kadarius Tony start to open up. So it's really going to have to be the way Andy designs that first 15 to see how they're going to send that pressure and how often they do it, how aggressive they are going to be. It's Brandon Graham talked about it today. They sound like they're going to really try and come after Mahomes. And if they do that, he's the best quarterback against the Blitz in the NFL since he was in the league, since he's been in the league since 2018. So it's a pick-your-poison thing. I understand they're, what they have been good at on defense this year is getting after the quarterbacks. They're going to try and utilize that strength, but you have the counter of Andy Reid being such a good play designer off a of bye week. He knows exactly what to do, and I think the screen game and quick game is going to mitigate some of that early on and get uh, Philly out of their tendencies. Does it matter at all that these two teams haven't met this year? They met last year, a lot of those same Philly players, but we saw in that game against Tampa Bay in the Super Bowl in the COVID year, it helped Tampa Bay that they'd already played the right. Chiefs the first time around. They found a way to bracket Tyreek Hill, put more pressure on Patrick Mahomes. I get it was a different offensive line at the time, but these two teams are not familiar with each other this yeah. year. And I could see somebody saying, well, that does maybe help Kansas City because if you haven't gone to them head-to-head, you may not know the best way to attack them. You can look at film all the live long day. But if you have that actual game experience against them in the regular season, it changes everything. So is it more advantage Kansas City or more advantage Philly that they haven't played each other? I think it could be advantage Kansas City just because of the way the NFL is now. It's more it leans more towards offense, right? So you have Andy Reid off a of bye week, and he's able to just scheme up. You know, it's one of the best defenses in the NFL. I know that there's been a lot of talk this week about the murderers row or lack thereof of quarterbacks that Philadelphia has played this year, but when they can get to the passer the way they have and their back seven is filled with, with veterans that are able, you know, kind of ball hawks, they, they know how to get it done, but the great equalizer is having the best play caller in the NFL on your team off a of bye week where he is, I think, 27, what is it, 27 and 4, 28 and 4 ridiculous in his like career that. between playoff and, and regular season bye weeks. So I think it, it benefits Kansas City here, but then again, Philadelphia has the same amount of time to try and scheme up the, the Kansas City offense. So it, it's going to be a chess match early in this game. I wouldn't expect the points to start coming until the second, third quarter. We may see like a 7-3 or 3-3 type of game early as the teams start to feel each other out. 
not too often do you see, uh, you know, now you know. Sometimes you'll get a rematch of the regular season. Not in this case, but you have two of the best teams that somehow didn't match up in the regular season. So it's going to be interesting early on to see how all of this plays out with the league leaning offense and with a lot of the the rules and schemes leaning offense. I give Kansas City the edge slightly, but it's it's not by much. Philly is going to be a tough challenge. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network as we do every Wednesday from 8 to 9. We're out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK previewing this Super Bowl matchup between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles. Now looking at this defense, speaking of Kansas City, uh, they come off one of their better performances of the season against Cincinnati. They got after Joe Burrow. They got after Joe Burrow a lot in the first and second quarter of that game. But I don't know if you can do the exact same thing against Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts is more mobile. Uh, This Philadelphia offensive line has multiple pro bowlers. They're not as banged up as Cincinnati is. So if you're Steve Spagnuolo, you have the playbook right now, you're in his shoes, how do you go about slowing down this offense that has put up 30-plus points in both of their postseason games so far? I mean, it is really tough because they are kind of the antithesis of a modern NFL offense where it is super heavy ground game. Now, it's very multiple. They can still throw outside the numbers. They have great wide receivers, but their offense has been mostly predicated on the run with Kenneth Gainwell, Miles Sanders, Boston Scott, Jalen Hurts is a huge, huge part of it. Uh, as well, so they're they're going to try and just play their game. Kansas City has to find a way to just mitigate it. You're not going to be able to stop the run, quote unquote, against Philadelphia, but you're going to have to find a way to contain it because they can milk clock and just death by a thousand cuts you down the field. And in the Super Bowl, in a, a game that is finite, you can't let that happen. You can't keep Patrick Mahomes on the sideline for you know, eight, nine-minute drives. You have to find ways to, to get them into passing situations on money downs and get off the field, get the ball back to your offense. So that that's going to be the biggest thing early is just containing the run. Like, get them in second and seven, and then get them in, if you can get them in, like, third and six, third and seven early on and force Jalen to throw, which he has not looked good doing since he came back from that shoulder injury, and he hasn't had to throw a lot in situations uh, behind the sticks. And even the, the one big completion he had, I mean, it, it was a completion, but it's it was yeah, it didn't catch exactly, it. Yeah. and that's that accounted for twenty five percent of his mm-hmm. passing yardage in the playoffs alone. So that just shows you how little they've done it, and he is really only thrown to the left side of the field. He has not looked to the right, and when he has looked to the right, it's been really short checkdown stuff. So the passing game has a lot of tendencies; it's very limited right now. Force them into those situations, load the box and force Jalen to throw. And if he beats you a couple times, then adjust. Because uh, A.J. Brown, Devonta Smith are really good receivers. He's going to throw balls up for them to go and get. Both are great at the catch point at incontested situations. Big test for the corners uh, after passing a really a really solid test after uh, T. Higgins and Jamar Chase last week or two weeks ago. Yeah, you talk about being one of the more well-rounded teams in the NFL. You brought up Devontae Smith, A.J. Brown. Both guys had over 1,000 yards receiving this year. Miles Sanders rushed for over 1,200 yards this year. Jalen Hurts, of course, was an MVP consideration before his shoulder injury. But some people have knocked Philly, despite being 16-3, and of just having a soft schedule, right? They wouldn't be 16-3 and if they played maybe in the AFC, like Kansas City did. Uh, they played in the NFC East, and though it was a much more improved NFC East, they got the chance to play Washington twice a year when they had three or four different quarterbacks on the year. You know, the Giants were a poor for a stretch in the middle of the season. Dallas didn't have Dak Prescott the whole year. And the NFC overall was just incredibly weak. So I could see people pointing to Philly and saying, hey, they're 16-3. and They're really good, but maybe those numbers are inflated because they had such a soft schedule. 
I believe that you can throw that out. It's the NFL. You have to beat those teams, and they exactly. dominated a lot of teams, even AFC teams that they dominated. You think about Tennessee when Ryan Tannehill was still healthy. They think they beat him like 38-7 to or something like that. I mean, Philly showed time and time again in the season that even when you doubted them, you thought they were maybe overachieving or they were a mediocre team at heart. They just kept winning football games. So can you read too much into the quarterback they played? the defense they played and say, hey, they're really not that good because their schedule was so soft. I think you could have two thoughts at once here where you have to play the teams on your schedule. In the NFL, like it's pretty dictated how your schedule is going to go. You're going to play every team in your division twice. You're going to play the other teams in your conference that finish in the same rankings as you. So I think what Philly finished second in the in the NFC East last year. Yeah, 9-8. and eight. Exactly. So they're going to play the other second-place teams, and then you're going to play the second-place teams in the other – so it's pretty structured, so there is an element of you just have to play the teams on your schedule. It's the NFL. You're not scheduling, like in college, where you're scheduling yep. a Sunbelt team, an FCS yep. team, and you can call it a soft schedule because the school intentionally did that. Not that way in the NFL. But you can also, on the other side of it, go, they did get kind of lucky with the draw, right? Yeah. They executed it, but it certainly they, they certainly benefited from it. And there is a certain amount of it where they weren't challenged very often. And the times that they were, they played a – quarterback that was above average they got got a little bit especially on the defensive side Dak Prescott dropped 40 on him the combination of Aaron Rodgers and Jordan Love had 33 uh Jared Goff scored 35 on him in week one the exception being uh Trevor Lawrence had a billion turnovers in that monsoon game and Kirk Cousins in a primetime game did what Kirk Cousins in a primetime game did uh credit to the Eagles for finding ways to win you know they went 16 they went 14 and 3 in the regular season there is credit to be done there for finding a way to win in the NFL but they haven't had to play a team like Kansas City in a caliber of quarterback like the Chiefs have they haven't had to play from behind a ton in some of these spots so you got to wonder if they get punched in the face early how do they respond uh, I think they're well coached enough I think Nick Sirianni has impressed the hell out of me from uh, week 1 last season really you know figuring it out uh, as, as an NFL head coach, when his uh, first game or his uh, introductory press conference certainly didn't look like it. I know people point to that, but it is an, it was an indicator that oh, I don't know, he has turned him turned this team uh, around very very quickly after zero expectations last season. I want to get your thoughts on on this schedule a little bit more with Philadelphia. And in Week 12, they played the Green Bay Packers. They played Aaron Rodgers, even though Aaron Rodgers had a bit of a down year. He was a little bit more conservative, more reserved with on-field type of play. Uh, I want to read off these quarterbacks to you that Philly played prior to that and after to that. So Green Bay was week 12, and they went on to beat Green Bay 40-33 in that game at home in Philly. And Jordan Love scored two of those touchdowns. He did. He did. So you had Jared Goff week one. You had Kirk Cousins week two. Carson Wentz week three. Trevor Lawrence week four. Kyler Murray week five. Cooper Rush week six. Kenny Pickett week seven. Then you had against Houston, I believe it was Davis Mills, if I'm not mistaken. It was. So Davis Mills was in week eight, week nine. You did not get Carson Wentz this go-around. You got Taylor Heineke against Washington. In week 11, you got Matt Ryan from Indianapolis. So when you're speaking of Patrick Mahomes, who we believe here in Kansas City, take it for what you want if you call it bias. We believe here, both Joel, you and I, we believe he's the best quarterback in the NFL. When you play a collection of quarterbacks like that and your defense can maybe overwhelm that quarterback, can the offense almost sit back on their heels a little bit and say, hey, we may not have our best game. We may not run the ball at a high rate. We may not throw the ball at a high rate. We may lose the turnover battle. But since we're playing such a bad quarterback, and I'm not saying all those quarterbacks were bad, but a handful were. They had bad seasons. Your offense can maybe get a little bit lax, and you can settle into that lax type of feeling, which you could see on the season. There were a handful of games 
the Eagles barely escaped. You go to their loss to Washington. They lost 32-21 to to Taylor Heineke at home. Yep. Then they follow up, go to Indianapolis, play Jeff Saturday in his second game, and they have a last-minute game-winning drive to pull that one out 17-16. So I think we've seen Philly at times get complacent because they're looking at the quarterback they're facing and go, he's not going to really beat us. Can that stick with you too long and maybe be a mentality that never goes away? And I know they're not going to look at Patrick Mahomes and say he's not. not a great quarterback, but maybe at times the offense gets laxed. I saw them get laxed against the 49ers going, Josh Johnson's out there. He's not moving the ball against us. Christian McCaffrey is a running back. This isn't JV high school football. You have to be able to throw the ball at this level. You have to throw the ball down the field. So could you see Philly at times, maybe not because it's Patrick Mahomes, but maybe because he's bum, has a bum ankle, maybe Kansas City has a weaker offensive line than Philly thinks they could. Could you see Philly maybe being laxed from time to time in this game, though it's the Super Bowl, but because of their regular season schedule of maybe not seeing a quarterback anything like Patrick Mahomes. I don't think it was necessarily that. I think there were times where they just knew they were the better team. We've seen Kansas City do this yeah. too, where jump out to a big lead in the first half and then just try and salt the game away. And they were really able to do that with success and you know not really put up a ton of points in second half, so just running the ball, getting out of there as, as injury-free as they possibly could. So I think it was more that than taking their opponent lightly. It was just, we, are, we have overwhelmed this team in the first half. We don't need to show anymore. Let's just get out of here. And so I think that was a lot of what we saw early on in the season with Philly. Then they started to get banged up. That's when some of the challenges came. Uh, but, man, they're still a really good team. It, I, I'm trying not to take them lightly at all and there's no reason no. to there were the number one seed for a reason they still found way uh even when Jalen got hurt to still be the number one seed get out of there and you know they they played the teams on their schedule they dominated two teams that they should have in the divisional and the championship round even though i think the 49ers if brock purdy stays healthy we may be having a different conversation yeah. but once he got hurt man you knew that game was over yeah. and of course they were going to steamroll daniel jones in his first playoff game like th- that's just the way that it fell it, there is a certain amount of luck like you bet sometimes you would rather be lucky than good at times and that's the way it fell they're in the super bowl and they're favored for a reason mm-hmm. at least we may not believe there's a reason but vegas obviously thinks there's yeah. a reason why they're favored you know it's i think it's very interesting cuz you brought up the point as well of hey kansas city barely beat houston beat houston in overtime went to the wire with Denver twice in Mile High and in Kansas City. There were multiple times this season the Chiefs hung around with a team that was far inferior to them, but we also saw them play up to their standard when they played a Cincinnati, when they played maybe the 49ers, uh, Tampa Bay at that point in the season. So you don't want to really pick apart each team and say, well, they barely beat this team. It is the NFL. It's it's the NFL. Just win. Just find a way to win. You're going to have tough games. You're going to have injuries. You're going to have calls go against you. But more importantly with this postseason and how two of these teams have got here, Kansas City, closer games. Jacksonville for three quarters or three and a half quarters. It was a pretty close game. We know how tight the game against Cincinnati was. But here was Philly, dominated their opponents. They were at home, just like Kansas City had the first round by. They played Daniel Jones, and they played Josh Johnson and Christian McCafferty. Can you read into that at all, going that they're going into the Super Bowl. They haven't had to sweat out a game in the postseason. They've played at home. They've played the comfort of their home. They haven't really had to open up the playbook that much because they've dominated their opponents so much. The running game has torched uh, the defensive line in both game wars. Kansas City, they've really had to grind it out, grit it out, and maybe you think if the game gets down to the wire, since Kansas City's played in more recent games that were tighter, maybe they can finish better. Or you look at a team like the Eagles and go, it doesn't really matter. They dominated. You can't fault them for that. Like, Can you read too much into 
how these teams got here by their margin of victory in the divisional the championship round. There's a certain amount of being battle-tested is important at this point in the season, and Kansas City certainly has. In these playoffs, they've had to overcome a lot of adversity. Philadelphia really hasn't. So it really is a wonder of if Kansas City jumps out early, if they get the ball yeah. to start the game and they go down and score. Because you know they're going to get three or seven on the, the opening script for Andy Reid drive. I don't think so. Say can't they? Can't, Philadelphia wins the toss, Kansas City gets the ball. You know Kansas City is going to score because it's a Andy Reid script off a bye. They're going to find a way to get points. It's just an inevitability of the NFL. That Philadelphia gets the ball a little tight after giving up an opening drive score. They punt. Kansas City gets the ball back, scores again. And it's 10 nothing, 14 nothing, or 10-3. How does Philly respond to that situation? Yeah. That is a, a huge part of this game. Now, if they punch back, then you know you're in for a 12-round fight. Uh, so we'll know pretty early on if Philly is really ready for this and if they can handle being a juggernaut, playing a juggernaut. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network, and we're out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. I like how you brought up that if this Kansas City team jumps out 10 14 nothing. We just mentioned that Philly's best aspect of its offense is running the football. They are a true old-school ground-and-pound team, but with a very much modern-day quarterback in Jalen Hurts, who's a dual-threat quarterback. He can air it out. He can beat you for 300, 330 yards through the air, but he also can run for over 100 But he hasn't done that since he got hurt. Exactly. So that's maybe why the Philadelphia offense has been a little more conservative in this game. But when you jump out 10-14-0 and you eliminate a running game, because Philly's not going to just say, well, we're not abandoning our game plan. We're down 14 nothing. we got to see more. And so far this postseason, Jalen Hurts has got to be conservative. He is he has had the opportunity to go, well, we're up 14 nothing, we're up 17 nothing, 24 nothing, 24-7. I don't need to air it out. I can take four-yard out routes. We can go three and out. It's not going to hurt us because our defense is that good. Is it the most important thing for Kansas City going into this game early on that they have to get out to that big lead because you can eliminate the running game? Or is it more so on the defensive side that you have to overwhelm Jalen Hurts in that running game from the get-go so that they can't go back to it later on. How would you maybe think uh, is, is the best way to go about it? I mean, you, you take your pick. You want your offense to come out firing score twice in the first two possessions, but is it more important for the offense to start hot or maybe the defense to start hot? Man, I'll take my cop-out answer and say it, it's a little bit of both. Yep. Like You have to be able to show, like if Kansas City comes out and scores, and that's awesome, but if the defense lays an egg on that first and drive, seven, then, seven exactly, yep. then you know they gain that confidence right away. So you need, the entire team has to come out ready to go, and you know Andy's going to get these guys ready. You know Spags is going to be in his bag early on trying to confuse Jalen Hurts as much as he can. You know Andy's going to have his AAA-plus script ready to go for this game. So you need all facets of your team to be ready for this. If it if I have to pick one, I want it to be the defense because I want them to assert their will early on, mitigate the run game, force Jalen to throw, and get the ball back to the offense as soon as possible and let them cook because you know that they're going to. And we saw, I guess, in the Jacksonville Jaguars game, that was kind of toe-to-toe early on. Remember the Chiefs go down and they score, and you think, that's the exact start we want. And the Jags go down and score in six or seven plays. Like, I think that, to me, gives me less confidence. Whereas in Cincinnati, to see the defense come out quick three down, you have a sack, and then after that you have two sacks on one drive. I'm going, man, maybe they can really run away with this game because it's only a matter of time before the offense gets going. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. With, with Patrick Mahomes in this offense, they could go three and out. They could have zero points in the first quarter. And you always know in the back of their mind, they're going to get hot. They're going to get exactly. their, their 14 points in a car, quarter, their 17 points in a quarter. As for the defense, even when they start hot, I think everybody understands here in Kansas City, that point in the game is going to come when they give up a four or five play drive. 
they get penalized a lot. We know Carl Sheffers will be in this game, oh, so the Chiefs defense is going to have to uh, play a little bit more clean than they typically do. But I think for this defense, when you can't really have the the immediate advantage of going after Jalen Hurts, you kind of have to sit back on your heels. Does that worry you that you're trusting maybe the young secondary a little bit too much? Because when you have Jason Kelsey up front, you have that Pro Bowl offensive line, multiple Pro Bowlers on the offensive line for Philly. You can't just say, all right, we're going to blitz the hell out of him. Because I don't think it's the best move to go about it. You have to trust your guys one-on-one. You have to trust your guys against A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, Dallas Goddard, Quez Watkins, even the running backs out of the backfield. Does it concern you that if Chris Jones, if Frank Clark, George Karloff, Carlos Dunlap can't get pressure, maybe the weight of the game is in the hands of rookie guys that were drafted in the sixth and seventh round for Kansas City? You know, it is going to be really tough. And if they had a tougher time with Jamar Chase and T. Higgins last week, I would have a little more concern. But those are two of the top ten receivers in the league, so this is going to be no different for them playing these two guys. And I don't think the combination of Brown and Devonta Smith is as good as the combination of Higgins and Chase. And that is not taking anything away from A.J. Brown and Devonta Smith. They are, yeah. again, in that conversation as top ten receivers as a in a top three combination in the NFL. But the, the Williams and Watson and McDuffie played so well against them and only gave up really two big highlight plays to them that – I know they're going to be able to hold their own. Yep. And Spags is going to put them in positions to succeed. And they're going to have Legereus Sneed on the back end helping them out too, yep. which is massive that he cleared protocol, that he can be back there too. And the fact those guys played so well last week without him speaks volumes to their development. You know Spags is going to be able to be more exotic with them, give the, and trust them a little bit more, which is going to help aid everything moving forward. I think the, the most interesting and ironic part of this all is, Joel, you've been on the show multiple times dating back to hell, probably September or October, I would feel like it. And we've dove into this Chiefs team. We've talked about the weaknesses. We've talked about weaknesses of the offense and the defense, the special teams, the coaching, the play calling, all of it. But does it really matter what happened in the first 17 games of the regular season when going into Sunday night? Because we've seen teams have weaknesses, have strengths going into the Super Bowl, and all that is wiped away. I'll never forget watching the Super Bowl growing up of the undefeated Patriots against the Giants team that had a even – Scoring differential, even point differential, and Eli Manning and the Giants beat New England. I don't think anybody in their right mind would have taken the Giants going into that game because you just can't pay attention to what happened in the regular season. You could win all those games. You could easily cruise in the postseason, and we could say Patrick Mahomes has to avoid the sack. You know, they have to run the ball well. They have to turn the ball over, and all of that is true. All those are benefits to the game. But you kind of can throw everything out because we don't know really how it's going to go down. We don't know these game plans. We don't know how the game is going to be called. We don't know how the special teams are going to look. So when you look at this game and we're trying to break it down, we're trying to preview, get our exact estimate of the scoring of the totals in this game, can you even take anything from those first 17 games and go, that's what I'm going to base my decision off of? I'm oh, sorry, can you repeat that? I kind of, there was something echoing yeah, somebody did. We got people that are winning some bets down there. But I was basically saying of, of that 17-game schedule, when you look at Sunday night, can you take away anything from that happening and base your decision on what's going to go down on something that maybe have happened in week six or week seven? Or is it all just kind of up in the air? It, it, I get a little bit of both because at a certain point you know what a team is. When in this season, you know, as, over the course of the season, you kind of know what you're going to get. But at the same time, it's the biggest game of the year for yep. both teams. So you kind of have to throw a lot of it out the window because teams aren't going to hold anything back. They're going to play. These dudes are going to play their you-know-what's-off. At all times, they're you know if they are 
even 60%, they're going to try and stay out there and play because it's that one last shot. Teams aren't going to be as conservative. You're going to be more aggressive. So game plans change a lot in the Super Bowl from, you know, week six. But you still kind of have an idea from the tendencies the teams have of how they're going to play it. So I, I think there is a there is a little an element of both in here that we should see. And we kind of know what this Chiefs team is. We know how they're going to operate. And I'd imagine it's going to be still kind of similar because of the way Andy Reid has always kind of run things. We're going to take our first break of the second hour. Second hour, we're out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino and KCK. I am your host, Jack Johnson. Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network is alongside me. Dylan Michaels back in the studio. When we come back, let's break down this injury report. It appears the Chiefs are a lot healthier, but Joel will tell us who he believes will have the biggest impact in this game coming off an injury from the AFC Championship game. This is the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. What a teaser. Super Bowl preview continues here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino and KCK. I am your host, Jack Johnson. This is the night shift, and alongside me still is Joel Penfield from KC Sports Network. Joel joins us every Wednesday from 8 to 9. Uh, sometimes we talk Royals, sometimes we talk Chiefs, but with this being the Super Bowl week, I don't think there's any need to dive into the Royals. We can save that for spring training. Is that great? He signed a one-year deal. He's back. Woohoo! Yeah, All right, Super Bowl. Let's we, go. We can break down the uh, the, the position battles. There we go. The final 30. But we did want to get into, because we teased it a little bit before our first break of the second hour, was this injury report. It appears the Chiefs are a hell of a lot healthier than they were the day after the AFC Championship game against Cincinnati. Remember, Kadarius Tony was on it. Juju was on it. Willie Gay was on it. I mean, for like everybody. And their cousin was on the injury report. Yep. And you felt like, oh, no, is this going to be the exact same thing that happened in 2021 where the cost of beating the Bills was you lost your two starting tackles. Or Mitchell Schwartz had already been up, but you lose Eric Fisher, and you're going, oh, man, I mean, how are you going to piece together this team? You don't want to just put duct tape, you know, on, on a right. crack cement or something like that. It a terrible way to end another season to see history kind of repeat itself there. And that's why it's important to to note that LeJarius Sneed has passed concussion protocol per himself. He said that to the media, that I am now cleared, I'm ready to go. Kadarius Tony said he's going to play. Juju's been talking to the media. It sounds like he's going to play. Now they're never going to tell you how healthy they really are. But of those guys, well, let's stick to those three guys right now, Kadarius Tony, Juju Smith-Schuster, and LeJarius Sneed. Which one has the best chance of making a major impact in this game against Philly? I think it's Kadarius Toney. I know having Snead back in the secondary is massive for this team because it takes some of the pressure off the rookies. Juju's ex-receiver element of the offense is important. But Kadarius Toney adds that extra juice to the offense that it desperately needs to function. I mean, we've seen he kind of plays that McColl, Tyreek, just put the ball in his hands and see what happens sort of roll and, you know, gadget or just throw the ball down the field to him. And they were very intentional early in that game against Cincy to get the ball in his hands. They were. And they, they, were, get, they were scripting stuff to get him the ball uh, on Jets and that little screenplay where he got hurt. They threw that little slant, that wheel route out to him uh, that was nearly a touchdown early in that game. 
So having him in there adds an element to the offense that they really need to be incredibly dynamic and add to that early script of just giving the ball and try and stop him. Good luck. Uh, because he, he's a – he moves – and Patrick said it, and it's true, and it's not a slight at Tyreek or anybody else, but he moves differently than anybody that I've seen with the football in Kansas City in a very long time with the contact balance, the speed, the agility, uh, all of that uh, co- combined is – sensational when he's on the field now he has to stay on the field i don't care if for the next three years in kansas city if the chiefs just wrap him in bubble wrap all week and list him as a limited participant just so he can be healthy on game day i think that would be perfectly reasonable so the limited participant designation doesn't worry me at this point i think that is purely precautionary because of the the rash of injuries he's had over the course of his nfl career so far but i think that's your guy what what do you think I mean, Kadarius Tony is is really uh, an unbelievable type of talent, physically, uh, speed wise. We thought McCole Hardman could be an X factor. I, I never realized how good Kadarius Tony could a be in space, but b be as a route runner. He's I a think, ridiculous route runner, and I, I think that that's what's so frustrating right now is that he can't stay healthy because we have seen Kadarius Tony really find ways to get open and create significant separation from good cornerbacks in this league. And that's why I think Andy Reid and also Brett Veach, when they looked at Kadarius Tony and said, hey, he's a guy that can really take us to the next level. And, of course, some people are going to say, I don't get it. I don't understand trading away a draft pick for Kadarius Tony because he's so hurt. He hasn't had a touchdown with the Giants. If he wasn't working with the Giants, how the hell is he going to work with Kansas City? And I know it sounds weird to say, but the Giants had no wide receivers, and Kadarius Tony still couldn't get on the field. How is he going to find time in Kansas City? And now at this point, it looks like the Chiefs stole him from the Giants. Absolutely. Uh, we've seen him be used in a different type of way, and when he's healthy, he really can be a game changer. And if he is close to maybe 90% in this game, yeah, I, I don't think they're going to shy away from getting him the ball. Now, the full injury report has Tony's the only limited participant, as Joel, you told me, with an ankle and a hamstring. Trey Smith was a full participant with an ankle injury. This is the most hilarious injury report I've seen. Jarek McKinnon, ankles. Both ankles. That's That just screams 30-year-old running back, doesn't it? Isn't that the, the most 30-year-old running back injury report of all time? I, I could just see them asking, you know, which ankle is it? He just says yes. <laughs> Both of them are killing me. But you know he's just still going to go out and try and body a linebacker. Oh, yeah. He'll, he'll have no, no problem chipping Hassan Reddick in this game. But he's on the injury report with ankles. He was a full participant. Isaiah Pacheco had a wrist problem. He was also a full participant. Juju Smith-Schuster with a knee injury. That did concern me in the AFC Championship game because of what was being said in the aftermath, that he was really struggling to get around in the locker room. I bet that was an adrenaline thing more than yes. like the, once the adrenaline wore off. Because he was jumping around on the field after the he game. Was. That's why I thought, oh, okay, maybe he's fine. And they were just being precautionary. But having to help him into the locker room, once that yeah. adrenaline wore off, they said it was just sore. It sounded like he'd like bang knees with somebody. is kind of running what I'd imagine. And those can uh, swell. Those can, yeah. So it sounds like he's going to be okay. If he's able to be a full go, I know that his production and his his uh, you know share of the routes and the the catches hasn't been there really since the uh, I think it was that first Denver game, but in this game where you're really going to need to spread it around to everybody and everybody's going to need to to contribute here, this feels like a game that Juju they're going to try and get him involved and go hey you want to come back <laughs> yeah it's it is such a intriguing option in this offense he is such an intriguing option in this offense because people forget that before he went down with his concussion he was really being looked at as the most trusted wide receiver oh no doubt about it i mean you look up and he was 67 yards away from a thousand yard season 
And, and he, he missed. Mi- and he missed a, a, he missed a couple time. of games. Yeah, he missed a couple of games. You know, he missed uh, the one right after the Jacksonville game. But he's had times this season where he was targeted, you know, north of 10 times a game. He was targeted 10 times in that overtime win against Houston, and he had 10 catches for 88 yards. In the game against Tennessee, we all remember that ugly one on Sunday night football. He was targeted 12 times. That was a season high. Had 10 catches for 88 yards as well. And then he also had a 5-for-113 performance against Buffalo, 7-for-124 against the 49ers. We have seen Juju Smith-Schuster be the old version of Juju in this offense. But at the same time, we've also seen him, since that Houston game, really kind of go back to a a non-fact in this offense. He had 3-for-27 against Seattle, 2-for-21 against Denver, 2-for-35 against the Raiders, 2-for-29 against Jacksonville, and only one catch for seven yards against Cincinnati. They're still going to give him the focus. As long as he's out there, the name alone is going to generate a Darius Slay type of guy on him. Or, you know, maybe like an Avante Maddox. I know he was on the injury report as well for Philly to be on Juju Smith-Schuster. And he did run a critical route early on in the game for Kansas City. I think it was a third and seven. He had a seven-yard out route and caught him a first down. I thought, there we go. You're getting Juju Smith-Schuster back in this offense, back into the rhythm of things, and he was never targeted again. Is there any chance that you could see – Juju Smith-Schuster reverting back to maybe that version he was against Houston, against the Bills, the 49ers, where he's getting separation 15, 20 yards down the field, not just being used in the slot, where he does thrive. He is a very physical slot receiver, but on the outside, being able to beat a guy one-on-one, give you that 12-yard post route, you know, that that 14-yard crossing pattern. I mean, can we see that version of Juju, or does that knee concern you too much where he's not going to be able to get that much separation? I I don't think he'll be able to do it all game, but I think he's still going to give it to you in spurts, and when he does, Mahomes is going to have to be able to get him the ball. And if he's able to do that, and if he has like a game, I could see him having a game like six catches for 65 yards, something like that. I I think it could be something like that, like be that third down magnet you know on a you know a dig route over the mm-hmm. middle or something like that because you know Kelsey's going to get the lion's share of the targets as yep. he should uh, the the linebackers for the Eagles have a lot to be desired so you know Kelsey is going to feast there and then the, you have pretty much the full complement of weapons outside of McCullough Hardman so this is about the healthiest the to- the totality of the weapons have been at this point for the Chiefs so we'll we'll see how the how this all works you know, I didn't really factor this in, and I don't know how much you would want to read into it, but Kansas City coming off a game in which it was, what, uh, 15 degrees, maybe a wind chill of about 2 degrees in that Sunday night AFC Championship game against Cincinnati. You're not playing in Glendale. Yeah. Okay, it's going to be warm weather. You're not dealing with bad conditions. Should we read into anything with that, that there's going to be no bad winds, no icy cold weather, guys aren't being beat up on frozen tundra? Or is this just, you know what, it's a football game in warm weather. Don't pay any attention to that whatsoever. It's a football game in warm weather. I'm not going to worry about that too much. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where some players, they play better in warm Certainly weather. Certainly is season. nice. I mean, it's, it's first nice. part of February. It's, it's not, not that good. Weather's not great up here in Kansas City right now. It's rainy and 35 degrees and not that not fun. Like, you and I are both... Obviously not NFL players, but I feel like if you had like high ankle sprain, right? You had high ankle sprain like Patrick Mahomes, and you are hobbling around and it's cold, right? And it's cold, and you get hit. You're probably not as comfortable, I would say. Whether that factors in where you go into Glendale, you can warm up in a t-shirt or tank top, and you're not having to be bundled up and be on the sideline in a giant jacket. I'm not sure how much that factors in because I played one year of high school football and I didn't play. So <laughs> I can't really say I've got much experience on that. But I'm sure there are going to be some people that bring up the fact that, hey, maybe it's a little bit warmer, not as cold weather. Philly was playing in cold weather as well against the 49ers. So you don't have to worry about any bad weather and maybe not for the injury-wise. On the defensive side of things in terms of this injury report, Willie Gay had a shoulder injury. 
and he has been a very prominent factor in the postseason, of course, with his play, but also off the field and talking a lot, saying nothing impressed him with Cincinnati. Now, he was asked at the Super Bowl media day about Philly's offense, about the running game. And I thought, I, I was listening to the interview live, and I thought, he's probably going to say something that's bold and board material again. And all he said is, we're going to stop him. You know, is that something you're fine with with your linebacker like Willie Gay and just to be able to have the confidence in your defense? I mean, he did back up the play against Cincinnati and said, hey, nothing impressed me about the offense, held that offense at 20 points, and sacked Joe Burrow four or five times in the game, forced two turnovers. I mean, they backed up that play on the or backed up his talk on the field. So are you fine with it now that he can kind of say whatever he wants, have that confidence in his defense? Because he's not trashing Philly. He just No, saying, I mean, what do you want him to him. say? Do you want him to say, no, we're, we hope that they don't Some score people like 30 the players speak. Like, at a certain point, man, you got to have confidence in your own team. And that's mm-hmm. not like he said anything terrible. No. It wasn't like he said, you know, like the like Mike Hilton, you know, some Burrowhead comment, some yeah. check he can't cash. <laughs> like, he just said, yeah, we're going to go out and stop him. What else do you want him to say? You, I would, I want my middle line, one of my middle linebackers, to have that sort of well. confidence. So that's fine. Like if he wants to be that talker, because Nick Bolton's not that guy. But no, you need, Nick you kind of have that quiet. foil. Like he's a lot more quiet. Willie Gay is going to talk a little bit. That's fine. Willie Gay is going to back it up. He's going to run around with his hair on fire. He's going to make a couple tackles. You're not even going to know he's going to have a shoulder injury because he's going to play so hard. I think it almost adds a different element to the game, too, when you have a, a player on defense that doesn't do a lot of trash talking, but more so confidence talk. I know it's not really a term, but when you think about guys just saying, hey, I have faith in the guy next to me, I feel like we're going to stop. There's a ton of that, and that, that starts with Patrick Mahomes. Like, yes. he did, it is very much team, not me whenever he has anything to say. So that, that starts at the top. That's the leadership to this organization. Now, I did think it was interesting because the next follow-up question was about Jalen Hurts. And he paused, and you thought, oh, boy, is he going to say, well, he's not that impressive. I mean, he, he's his captain check down. He doesn't throw the ball down the field that much. He's banged up. We're not worried. But he did praise Jalen Hurts heavily, said he is a great quarterback. He's very mobile. He can beat you in a variety of ways. Did you think or would you think him praising the quarterback instead of maybe bashing Joe Burrow was held behind the scenes? Like Andrew would saying, hey, we're going into this game. Let's let's not, you know, attack the quarterback. You know, just keep it simple. You know, maybe maybe it comes down to just Willie Gay respects Jalen Hurts more than he does Joe Burrow because Chris Jones also Man, this team, like the the legitimate rivalry between the Bengals and the Chiefs, they do not like the Bengals. Chris Jones said that his quarterback, the quarterback he enjoys sacking the most is Joe Burrow. So I, I think they genuinely don't respect or don't a, like Joe Burrow, where maybe it's just respect for Jalen Hurts that you haven't seen him as much. But I almost wonder if Andy Reid, after some of that talk, or even when the talk was going on, was, hey, guys, let's handle on the field. Well, let's, let's not single out certain guys because you don't want to give any of those players that are good motivation to kick your ass. It's happened to Patrick Mahomes before. I'm not sure why people would, would trash Patrick Mahomes or give him reason to write something down and, and kick your ass with it. But, you know, I think the Chiefs' defense, though not best in the league, They've got a lot of confident guys, and if I'm Steve Spagnuolo from Andy Reid, I'm not trying to drain that confidence from them going into this game. There's a certain amount of lessons to be learned with what we've seen around the NFL where you don't write checks you can't cash. Mm-hmm. And even though I think the defense could cash those checks, you don't want to leave it out there for people to, to ridicule you for, like we've seen with the Bengals over the last two weeks with all the stuff that they, they talked uh, before the, the AFC Championship. So you see the Chiefs are internalizing a lot of it. And sure, they're letting some stuff go. I can't blame them. It's the Super Bowl. You got there. There's some confidence to be had. But they're holding a lot of that in, and then they're going to let that talk on the field. And then when they're holding up the Lombardi Trophy, then you let it go. And you be the most confident person, the most arrogant person in the world, because you just won the Lombardi Trophy, and you're partying in Glendale.
We've seen this debate, and we're here out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino and KCK. It's the night shift. I'm Jack Johnson. That's Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network. We're wrapping up hour number two here with Joel, and he joins us every Wednesday from 8 to 9, either talking Royals or Kansas City Chiefs. But Patrick Mahomes has been in this this debate of late of getting that second Super Bowl ring. And where does that put him in terms of greatest of all time? Of course, Tom Brady right now is the greatest of all time. He's got seven rings. It's unlikely, I would say, Patrick Mahomes matches seven or gets to seven. Even if he would have beat Tom Brady in his second Super Bowl. It still would have been hard to get to six. It still would have been hard to get to six, exactly. And I feel like with Patrick Mahomes, he's going to have that second MVP. I would like to put money on that he gets his second Super Bowl ring, but let's say he does. Uh, Where does he rank in terms of all quarterbacks at that point? Because he's only been a starter for five years. But you have two MVPs, five division titles, maybe back-to-back Super Bowl MVPs, and... You know, you have those two Super Bowl rings. So where does that put him? Is he is he number one because he's dominated so much with terms of on-field play and winning? You know, Tom Brady, he won his first two Super Bowls, but even early on, he wasn't the factor that Patrick Mahomes is for Kansas City. Tom Brady, not saying he was carried, but had a very good defense. I know what you mean. Yeah, had, yeah. Got, had good weapons. It's always been the debate with Tom Brady that sometimes he was carried to a Super Bowl, but he got those Super Bowl rings. So would it be maybe the most dominant five-year stretch we've seen Two MVPs, two Super Bowl rings, maybe two Super Bowl MVPs, five division titles, and multiple seasons of double-digit wins. Actually, all five were all double-digit wins. I don't think it's debatable that it would be the greatest five-year, at least five-year start yep. to a season in the no history question. of the league. Uh, when Because <laughs> first year as a starter to now, mm-hmm. it's been unprecedented what he's been able to do, let alone just a fi- any five-year stretch in this yep. league. But to talk about where he, this would put him, if he, there have been there are four quarterbacks in Super Bowl. There, if he, this is assuming the Chiefs win. There are four quarterbacks in NFL history with two MVPs and two Super Bowls. It would be Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, Joe Montana, Peyton Manning. Mm-hmm. That's it. Say he plays the game of his life, but full masterpiece in the Super Bowl and wins Super Bowl MVP. There are three quarterbacks in NFL history with that. It would be Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, Joe Montana. He, I think he would end up being three at that point. Mm-hmm. He would have already. He has as many. Uh, he has as many Super Bowls as Peyton Manning and more Super Bowl MVPs, and he didn't get carried to a Super Bowl at the end like Peyton did. Mm-hmm. It, it would be in that conversation of, is he already going to pass Joe Montana? I think it would be that that's what is going to happen, especially if he plays well. Now, if the Chiefs win, and he it's a similar to the 49ers where it's a little iffy early on and then just turns it on at the end, goes full Superman, and the Chiefs win uh, after, with a couple of great plays and late in the game. I don't know if that conversation will be had. But if he plays a four quarters of elite football like he did against the Bengals in the AFC Championship when the Chiefs needed it the most, it, it would be really hard to debate if he's not the second or third best quarterback of all time already, five years in, just getting started in the NFL into his prime at 27 years old. I want you to rank the three Super Bowl appearances Patrick Mahomes has been in in terms of your nerves going into that game. You had his very first Super Bowl against the 49ers and won. Then you have the COVID year going and playing Tampa Bay, where I felt probably the most confident of <laughs> these three. Yeah. And Philly, I I know it's been a while since the 2020 Super Bowl, but I have to say I'm more nervous than I've ever been for a Super Bowl. I was the most nervous for the 49ers Super Bowl because that was the first time the Chiefs had been there in a very long time. I had never experienced it before uh, as a Chiefs fan, so that would probably rank the, you know, the most nervous. I was super confident in the like – blind, blindly confident for that Bucks game. And then I'm probably it's probably second for this one. I'm very nervous for this game. I feel confident. I think the Chiefs are going to win. I know the Chiefs are going to win. But then kickoff is going to happen. I'm going to be like, oh, buddy, here we go. And I'm, those nerves are going to kick in, and I'm going to be a 
emotional roller coaster on my couch for the four hours that of the the entire Super Bowl experience. And then hopefully by the end, I'm having a glass of bourbon and a cigar celebrating the Chiefs winning their second Super Bowl in four years. Hopefully everybody in Kansas City is either celebrating in a bar, Power and Light, Westport, wherever you go, whatever bar you go to. Maybe you're just at home and you want to celebrate, like Joel said, with a cigar in the backyard with some bourbon. Now for your final question here, Joel, because this will be the last time we preview a Chiefs game for quite some time. We'll have to transition to college basketball, the NCAA tournament, and Royals baseball. Let's do it, yeah. For the last time, Joel, I want to hear your official prediction for this Super Bowl between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles. This is going to be the masterpiece Patrick Mahomes puts together. He is going to play as well as we've ever seen the quarterback position played in the Super Bowl. I, I firmly believe this is going to be the game that cements him in that conversation as one of the greatest ever already the Chiefs are going to win their second Super Bowl in four years they're going to beat the Eagles 34 to 30 and they're bringing the Lombardi back to Kansas City we're going to be partying at Union Station next week you hear it from Joel Penfield 34 30 Chiefs over the Eagles in the Super Bowl Joel thanks so much for your time as always and hopefully we're talking to you next Wednesday and recapping a Super Bowl victory for Kansas City I need it like I need oxygen I think everybody here at Kansas City is on pins and needles. You know it's Wednesday. Just get us to Sunday, man. I usually don't want to skip Fridays and Saturdays. I'm, I, you can do it. Just let's it. skip it to Sunday right now. <laughs> get that, get me the, through the work week, too, which I would really appreciate. Get us through the work week. Get us to Sunday so we can see this game. We're out here at Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. Big thank you to Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network. He will join us every Wednesday from 8 to 9 talking all things Kansas City. When we come back here, though, on the night shift, we'll talk some K-State basketball with Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com. I am your host, Jack Johnson. Dylan Michaels back on the board. This is Sports Radio 810 WHB. Casino in KCK, running our full Super Bowl preview. But of course, we can't have full three hours or two and a half hours of just Chiefs talk. So we are going to dive into some college basketball here, and we're going to do so with our K State guy, gives us everything with K State basketball, K State football, and that is Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com. Ryan, thanks so much for your time to come on the show tonight. Thank you so much for having me on, Jack. So K-State, after their win last night against TCU, now 19-5 and overall in the season. They're 7-4 and in conference play, tied with Kansas in the Big 12 race. They now are up next on the road against Texas Tech in Lubbock. We're getting down to crunch time here, Ryan. What would you like to see in this final seven-game stretch? Of course, you'd like to see them win it all, but for maybe heading into the tournament, what do you need to see improve with this Kansas State team and really work on to be a tough out in March Madness? You know, Jack, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch base on this TCU game from, from last night and kind of dissect that one. But Kansas State had a really good, uh, you know, playmaking off of its bench last night. And Dyke Green had a season high 14 points. Desi Sills was there, 13 points. Excuse me. Desi Sills had 14 points off the bench. And so Kansas State really got some much needed production from those guys coming off the bench, right? We all know Marquise Noel. We all know Keontae Johnson. Those two guys are going to get their buckets 
Kansas State to truly be an elite team or to win a conference to go, you know, out of the first weekend of, of March Madness, you're going to have to guy have a guy score um, to help complement those two guys, right? Kansas State needs a third score, and it looks like, you know, Kansas State, if they could just get one of those guys, that would be just so huge for them. So that's, you know, that's a big uh, – that's a big thing that could really help this team is, is is consistent bench scoring. I don't think it necessarily has to be the same player night in and night out, but Noel and Johnson, you know, just can't do everything on their own, right? I think rebounding is big. You know, Kansas State's weakest, you know, spot on this team is, is probably that interior defense. Offensively, K-State's fine, you know, down low in the paint. They can score, get into the basket and all that stuff. But on defense, Kansas State, just finding a way to, to sort of muscle up and minimize the impacts that, you know, opponents have in the paint is going to be huge. Eddie Lampkin played about 20 minutes last night against Kansas State. Was he fully healthy? No, not at all. But K-State still, still I think, held him scoreless, and I think he only had like two rebounds in that game. So, you know, Kansas State's making those strides forward. I think a lot of that's coaching. You know, maybe that's guys just kind of working harder, fighting harder for those balls and stuff. But, uh you know, I think it's probably the, the bench production and, and being physical down low because Kansas State's got some phenomenal guard play that it's had all throughout Big 12 play. And so the, the schedule jacket does ease up a little bit for Kansas State. You know, you've got your next four road games to finish out the conference play are, are when you look at the standings, the bottom four teams, right? So it, it eases up a little bit. I'm not saying that Kansas State's going to go out and win the conference, but uh, to be one game back right now, I think, you know, Kansas State's probably a little fortunate after that three-game skid that it had in the Big 12 to, to be just one game back. Obviously, you're going to need some help from Texas, who is in first place. But I think if Tang, you know, you're asking him, you know, regardless of what his standing would be in the in the Big 12, if he'd be a top 25 team, you know, before the season even started with 11 newcomers, I think he would, would gladly take that. So, you know, the, the, the ceiling is high for this team. Obviously, some opponents can create some matchup issues for the Wildcats, but uh, I think there's still room to grow for Kansas State. You know, I thought, Ryan, that the, the road skid they had in conference play was a little bit blown out of proportion because the teams they lost to on the road three consecutive times was TCU, was ranked top 20 at the time. You lose in Hilton to Iowa State, who's undefeated this year, and then, of course, you lose to Kansas at Allen Fieldhouse. And now you have two of your next games on the road against Texas Tech. Always tough to play in Lubbock, regardless of what the Red Raiders' record is. And then you play Oklahoma and Norman, who did beat Alabama, who was second in the country time by 24, but, of course, have had so much inconsistency this year but is it blown out of proportion of that that road slide they had in conference play it's always tough to win in the big 12 on the road but do you read too much into it are you concerned going into these games because they're still big 12 road games where do you sit on the cats uh, most recent play on the road in the conference winning on the road is tough in the big 12 right i think we all know that and you know winning at ku is very hard <laughs> you know everybody knows that with bill self the atmosphere that's a tough place to play. In, in Kansas State, I think it was a four-point defeat up in Ames just a few weeks ago, and so that was one that Kansas State maybe could have had, right? And so TCU, that loss was one they kind of just like to wash away. Uh, that was just a forgetful game, a sloppy game from Kansas State. But I would say it maybe got blown out of proportion just a little bit just because defending your home court in the Big 12 is is ultimately what's, what's probably just going to decide – if you can win a, a conference title or not, right? If you if you lose more than you know two games, I'd have to go back and, and look through the years. But I doubt 
it's the Big 12 champions have lost many home games right throughout the years. So I, I would say, yeah, it's been blown out, blown out of proportion a little bit, you know, because like I did mention just a, you know, a second ago, Kansas State faced the top four teams, you know, excluding themselves in the standings on the road. Now they get the bottom four on the road. So, you know, if these struggles do continue, then I do think it's a serious cause for concern. But, you know, right now, you know, winning on the road is just very tough. And, you know, those are three very quality Big 12 teams that Kansas State lost to. Obviously, you would have liked to have maybe one of those games. But I think that maybe the bigger issue was not the three-game road game, you know, losing streak that Kansas State had. I think it was the three-game skid within the Big 12. I think that kind of gets overlooked a little bit because Wildcats beat up on Florida, who's a, you know, below average, maybe middle of the pack SEC team, right? You pick up a win against Florida, and, you know, that kind of hides a three-game losing streak within the Big 12. And so Tuesday night's victory over TCU is just immense for Kansas State to kind of get over a hump, get out, get out of that slump that it was kind of in for, you know, a few games in the Big 12. And the, the most encouraging part of that win was, was the fact that Kansas State won comfortably right now the final score Kansas State won by 21 points that doesn't really dictate to you how this game went you know it was kind of around 10 12 points for most of the second half until K-State went on a very late run but you know overall it was a big win for Kansas State to get back on its feet get some positive momentum going into these road games and and yeah I think if Kansas State loses both of these games or gets blown out in one of these games on the road coming up then yeah I think you can really be concerned but Kansas State lost to, to three quality opponents on the road, so I think it does probably get blown out of proportion a little bit. We're talking with Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com. Ryan, who was the one player maybe? I know there's a, a handful of great role players for Kansas State. Love Naquan Tomlin, what he can bring offensively on the interior. I think Desi Sills uh, is great off the bench. I think Ishmael Massoud is great off the bench. Tyker Green, as you mentioned, was great last night against TCU. But if there's one player, and I know it's probably going to come down the two in Keontae Johnson and Marquise Noel, if there's one player the Cats cannot win without, who would that be? That's a really good question because Kansas State has had many guys step up. You mentioned Masood. You mentioned Tomlin Sills. You know, last night it was Tyke Green. All these guys can step up and score, but finding it on a consistent basis has really been the challenge of this team. You know, they haven't been able to find it for many of these guys. Tang mentioned it last night in postgame, how he'd rather have a guy, you know, drop 10-11 points night in and night out rather than have a guy drop 24 against KU and then the next game drop zero points, right? That's what Desi Sills did just a few weeks back. So you want to have consistency with that third score. I would, I would, if I had to answer this, I'd go with Desi Sills just because he's probably shown the most consistency, even though we had a, a three-game skid just a few. I think it got snapped on, I, th- I think it was the Florida game he got snapped, but there were three straight games where, tight, where, where Desi Sills hadn't connected on a single field goal, right? He was, all of his points came from the free throw line. So he's had his inconsistencies, but I think he's probably got the highest ceiling of, of the guys, of these wild card candidates, right, to come up and be that third scorer. I personally, Jack, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing Desi Sills slip into the starting lineup, bump Naquan Tomlin out, maybe play a little bit smaller, uh, obviously, for, for one, I think Naquan Tomlin struggled here a little bit in Big 12 play. You know, only been playing organized basketball for a matter of two, three years is starting to catch up to him against the, the nation's toughest competition. So 
I wouldn't be opposed to seeing Tomlin maybe go to the bench for a little bit, go smaller. But also, Marquise Noel has been in a little bit of a slump lately. You know, he's had uh, a couple games where his turnovers have been higher than his assists, right? He's not shooting it at a very efficient rate. And so, you know, maybe you give Marquise Noel some help with Desi Sills running the point and, and you let Noel play off off of off off the off excuse me off of Desi Sills and maybe he feels more comfortable that way, right? But I wouldn't be opposed to seeing Desi Sills go in there because he's you know, he's shown that he can score, get him into the starting lineup. Now obviously the other end of the spectrum here is you know, maybe you want to keep that coming off the bench, right? You want to keep Desi Sills, that energy that he brings as the sixth man. You want to keep that coming in, you know, 17, 16 minutes at that mark, you know, in the first half, just a couple of minutes, you know, into the game. Then you bring in Sills. Maybe that's what he's more comfortable with. Who knows? You know, I'm not the coach. I think there's pros and cons to, to doing this and trying this, but I would, would absolutely not be opposed to letting Desi Sills crack the starting lineup. One of the guys you did bring up when we were going over some of the role players on this team was Ishmael Massoud, and I think if you wanted to put a label on Massoud, you'd say the three-point specialist of this team, and going back to his performance against Iowa State, where he had 13 points in 27 minutes, then gives you 21 minutes off the bench against Florida, he has 14 minutes off the bench against Kansas, and then 13 off the bench against Texas. He doesn't score at a high clip, and he's usually taking shots from outside, but last night, only four minutes in that game and didn't have an attempt from anywhere on the floor. Uh, anything to read into there? Is it something that maybe his defense is keeping off the floor, not really a great rebounder, and maybe Jerome Tang wants more out of a three-point specialist? Why did we not see Ishmael Massoud a lot in the game last night? Last night was, was Tyke Green's game where he you know kind of came out and surprised everybody with his, with his output. So I think that, you know, I don't know if there's a whole lot to read into it. I think Tyke Green just had a big game and stepped up and Tang with a hot hand screen. So Masood is, you know, I think he's he's been used a lot in certain games, and he's not been used a lot in certain games. And Tang and his staff are kind of big on what they see in the opponents and, and what, you know, players for K-State can give them the best chance to win, right? Tang has mentioned how he's not married to a starting lineup. He's willing to shake things up. You know, Masood, Tyke Green, these guys both earlier in the season uh, went uh, a whole game without playing at all, not a single minute. And I think Tang was, was trying to send a message to those guys like, hey, you got to work harder, you got to buy in, et cetera. I don't think that's what happened with Masood. Uh, obviously, you know, only playing, what, four minutes right, that, that's not ideal. But I think it was more of a matter of it just being Tyke Green's night and I think you bring up, you know, you bring up Masood, right? He's, you know, he's had those great offensive performances. He he really is kind of that three-point specialist. Even though he's six foot nine, he's got such a sweet stroke as a forward. But you know, I mentioned Naquan Tomlin. You know, that's a guy that has struggled on offense and defense, right? Ish Masood, he would absolutely be on the floor more if his defense was better. I think that's probably part of your answer here. He didn't get on the court against TCU probably because that staff didn't like the matchup with Masood going up against whoever that may be on TCU down low in the paint. Uh, but but Masood in Big 12 play has absolutely been a better offensive player, right? He's kind of been boomer bust, feast or famine just a little bit with his three-pointers, but he's got a very high ceiling. And so that kind of circles back to, you know, maybe if you don't want to put Deadly Sills into that starting lineup spot, maybe you put Ish Masood in there and let him try to get going from three early on. But I wouldn't look too much into it. I think it was kind of just Tyke Green's night and, and the staff rode with the hot hand. 
Oh, we look a little bit at this front court. I know you brought up Naquan Tomlin being much better on the offensive side. I thought David Gasson had his best game as a member of the Kansas State basketball program last night. So if you had to maybe pick your guy for this front court to emerge as maybe the top guy on the interior, would you go with Gasson? Would you go with Tomlin? I'm sure it's not going to be a guy like Bebe Igiola. He did give good minutes when Gasson was out, but I feel like it has to come down to Gasson and Tomlin, no? Yeah, and Bebe is a, a solid, fine you know, basketball world player, whatever you want to describe him as. He's a hard worker. He's bought in, and, you know, he, he does his best, but he's he's not a big 12 starter, right? And so it's going to be one of these couple of guys that you mentioned. I think it's David Gasson. It's, it's pretty pretty simple. Gasson hasn't been healthy. Big 12 play. He's only been on the court for just a few games now, and he's only going to continue to, uh, to get, you know, more healthy with his foot and also just kind of get into – you know, top physical condition. I think he was pretty fatigued once he returned back onto the court for Kansas State. Uh, so if Gasson can continue to get better and get healthy, I think he's he's absolutely got a chance to be that guy interior uh, for, for Kansas State. Obviously, it could be, you know, Naquan Tomlin if he can break out of this slump. But I honestly, Jack, I don't see that happening. I think he's going to have to work a lot in the offseason, get better, get stronger, you know, be more physical and, and just learn you know, learn basic fundamentals. I think when you don't play, you know, organized basketball your whole life and you start doing that at, you know, you're, what, 17 or 18 years old, you know, it's going to take a lot of a lot of repetition in the practice facility, in the weight room, all that stuff. And so I would go with Kassan. I think he's only going to get better as the season goes on with, uh, with him continuing to get healthy. We're talking with Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com, talking everything K-State basketball. Now, of these final seven games – on the Big 12 slate, four of them come against teams that are not ranked, on the road, that is. The two games against ranked opponents would be against Baylor and Iowa State, although Iowa State just lost tonight in Morgantown to West Virginia. Now, I'm curious your thoughts here, Ryan. I believe that the Big 12 champion will not so much be decided about which ranked teams they've beaten, but been how they've handled the bottom teams in the conference. And, of course, with Kansas State, they get Texas Tech, who just lost on a buzzer beat to Oklahoma State. They get Oklahoma, two of the bottom teams in the conference, Oklahoma State near the bottom, and, of course, West Virginia and Oklahoma as well, again, on the bottom. So if K-State is to win, or at least clinch a share of the Big 12 title, is it more important in those five games against the lesser teams in the Big 12? Or do you just say, hey, you still got to knock off Iowa State and Baylor. Those are the two most important games left on the schedule. I think you nailed it on the head, Jack. You know, to win the Big 12, you obviously got to win as many games as you can. But beating those teams, and I hate to be, you know, disrespectful to, to Texas Tech or OU, whoever you want to say, West Virginia, whoever's near the bottom of the standings, right? But you've got to beat up on those teams if you're Kansas State, especially with them being on the road. These are your winnable road games, so to speak, for Kansas State. And so, you know, these are the games that you've got to win. You know, you mentioned FS, man. You're not going to win the Big 12, you know, beating those ranked teams. You're going to you're going to win it by winning the games you're supposed to win and, you know, stealing a road game against KU or stealing a road game against Iowa State, whatever that may be. You know, Kansas State stole a few road games uh, early on in Big 12 play, back-to-back wins over Texas and, and Baylor back in early January, right? Those are paying dividends for the Wildcats moving forward. K-State doesn't have those right now. They're a middle-of-the-pack Big 12 team. So, you know, winning these road games is, I think, uh, probably more important than those home games against Iowa State and Baylor because there's there's kind of more of an expectation to 
to, I don't want to say win those games, but be highly competitive in those games. Kansas State only lost one game in Bramwich all season long. So defending your home court is just so important in the Big 12. And whenever you can steal those road victories, those are great. Obviously, the road, uh, excuse me, the, the, the road games are the unranked teams, and the last two ranked teams K-State has, of, of course, is at home. So, yeah, I think you just nailed it, Jack. You've you got to win those games against the, the quote-unquote bottom teams of the Big 12. Now, last question for you here, Ryan. It's, it's a ways off here. There's still seven games left on the regular season schedule, but it will be a different type of feel in Kansas City this year because Kansas State's not going to be the ninth or the tenth seed in the tournament. <laughs> They're going to be a top-four seed likely in the tournament, for sure top-five depending on where Baylor and Kansas and Iowa State all finish. But you're going into that tournament not really needing to prove something, not needing two or three wins to make the NCAA tournament. And I know it's a ways out. We don't really know how it's all going to shake down. But let's go in the shoes of Jerome Tang here. Let's say you finish third or fourth, and you've pretty much locked up maybe a three or four seed in the NCAA tournament. How do you approach a tournament like that when you're not needing, let's say, a win or two to to get a better seed, to get a better spot in the tournament, when it's basically just getting revenge on some of the teams you may have lost to or getting an extra couple wins to pad your resume uh, before the NCAA tournament? You know, Jerome Tang was asked that. Basically, that kind of same exact question. This was probably a month ago, but, you know, Tang's answer was when you look at the last, I think, the history of the NCAA tournament, the, you know, all the champions have been, I think it was top four, top five seeds. You know, anybody past that has never won the NCAA tournament. So I think Tang truly believes the importance of getting a higher seed. That really matters in the NCAA tournament, right? You get better. You know, you, you have a chance of getting some better draws with the location of where you're playing, you know, proximity to, to Manhattan. I'm sure all that matters. But, you know, playing up against the, you know, who knows, a, a 12 seed instead of a 11 seed, right? Like that could be the difference for Kansas State in the first round doesn't get knocked out or whatever. And you don't have to go through, uh, you, you know, attrition in that first game or that second game which you're playing against lesser teams, you know, all that stuff. And so Tang is, you know, he said that they want to be competitive you know, to get the best seed they can in March Madness, right? And, you know, if the Big 12 titles, you know, out of reach in their regular season, you know, I still think they're going to be bought in. Um, but, but Jack, this is interesting, man. Like, we talked about this on our PowerCat Questions podcast today, actually. And you look at the Big 12 standings, man, like with Oklahoma State winning tonight, there's, there's seven teams now that are above 500. Mm-hmm. One of those teams is going to be playing on that first round, you know, the, the first round day in Kansas City. And so I don't think K State's going to slip and fall, but I mean, there's a chance that this could really happen where Kansas State, with a winning record, could be, you know, playing on that first day in, in the T Mobile Center. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it's going to happen to somebody who is a, because Oklahoma State, like out of nowhere, Jack has just sort of emerged as kind of a, a team to watch out for in the Big 12, right? So. I think K-State's bought in, though, and, you know, Tang is – he after the Texas loss on Saturday that Kansas State had to, to make that losing streak in the Big 12 go to three games, Tang was – to quote Tang, he was pissed, right? He wanted his players to be upset. He wanted his players to, to let that feeling of losing, you know, sit with them for 48 hours until that next game. Tang was upset. And after last night's game, he, you know, he mentioned that, hey, he wanted those players to feel like they were stepping on eggshells in the practice facility, in the weight room, all that stuff. And I think that the, the environment within the uh, confines of ice, you know, basketball center were, were, were not good 
if you were a K-State player, and they got back in the winning column. And so I think that kind of just I, – I bring this up because that goes to show you, uh, you know, how locked in Tang wants his team to be night in and night out. And that goes for the Big 12 tournament, to answer your question, despite what the seeding may be, despite what, you know, Joe Lenardi says on bracketology. Yeah, it's like you said, Ryan. I mean, it's just another night in the Big 12 with Oklahoma State and West Virginia now really out of nowhere. Uh, teams to be reckoned with in the Big 12, and it's very telling, I think, when you have a team like Oklahoma, who's the second worst in the conference, uh, basically humiliate the only undefeated team left in the SEC. It's just a gauntlet. Uh, it's nearly impossible to get any sort of gimme in this game, and there certainly won't be any more gimmies for Kansas or Kansas State to close out the regular season. Ryan, thanks so much for your, uh, your time as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Yes, sir. Appreciate you, Jack. There he goes. That's Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com, our main source and only source of K-State football and K-State hoops. We're out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. This is the Night Shift. I am your host, Jack Johnson. Dylan Michaels on the board. When we come back, let's transition to some Major League Baseball talk and talk about our boys in blue, the Kansas City Royals, who, per the Zips projections, have the lowest win total of anybody in Major League Baseball. We'll get Max Reaper's thoughts of Royals Review next on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Live out here with the night shift on the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. I am your host, Jack Johnson. Dylan Michaels back in the studio because it is time to talk some Royals baseball with Max Reaper of Royals Review. Max, thanks so much for your time as always to take the time out of your day and come on the show. Absolutely, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Now, I saw Royals Review quote tweet this today, so I feel like we have to kick it off with it, that Fangraphs has the Royals finishing the 2023 season with the worst record in Major League Baseball. Now, we are out here at the Barstool Sportsbook, so should I put some money on the over or under total for 70 wins on the season for the Kansas City Royals? (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't a a promising-looking projection. Uh, and, And look, some of that's because they're playing so many young guys, right? And with young players... There's a lot unknown there. We don't know how a lot of these guys are going to translate to the majors. A lot of the guys that, that made it last year, we saw a small sample size of what they can do, and I think some of what we saw was pretty promising. But there's just a lot of volatility there. So with these young, you know, with these younger teams, you know, I, I think the projections are going to say, well, we don't know what they're going to do. Um, so until they kind of prove it, you know, their projections are going to be kind of low. But I think many, I think most Royals fans know it's going to be a long year. It's going to be an evaluation year. Uh, and that's fine. I think you know that's fine with me. I'd, I'd like to see what these young kids can do. Uh, but yeah, if you're if you're going out there, I, I wouldn't put a lot of money on uh, the Royals to win the Central Division or anything. Uh, you know, save your money for the Chiefs instead. You know, I thought it was an interesting article that David Lesky put out inside the Crown on the major league pitching development. That it was clear that hey, if you think the only problem was that it was the major league development, the coaching staff at that level, and not so much with the minor league development, we should all expect a pretty big jump in just one year, should we not? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting kind of stance for the front office to take. You know, they're pretty defensive about the minor league development. They're like, hey, 
we think that you know we think that they we're doing a good job there. Uh, the problem, Jonas, kind of seems to be on Cal Eldred. You know, they're kind of throwing him under the bus a little bit. It seems like, and look, Cal Eldred, I don't think did a, a very good job here. But um, you know, it, it, by putting it on on his feet, kind of, and saying you know Brian Sweeney and, and Jack Bow, the, the new pitching staff, uh, is, the pitching coaching staff is going to kind of be the answer here. That, that's a lot of pressure, I think, to kind of turn things around quickly because. We know these pitchers have talent. I mean, these guys were top prospects, high draft picks. Uh, they, they've looked good on occasion. I mean, certainly Daniel Lynch has had moments. You know, he's had starts where he's gone eight shutout innings and had a lot of strikeouts. Jonathan Heasley has looked really good in some starts. Uh, you know, uh, Carlos Hernandez has looked really good in outings. It's just been a matter of consistency with a lot of these guys. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it comes down to preparation, which that was a big criticism of Cal Eldred, and that's something that, J.J. Piccolo has talked a lot about when he hired a new pitching coach, getting guys prepared for matchups, getting guys prepared, uh, you know, with their game plan, and then pitch design as well. Like, how do we how do we confront these hitters? How do we attack these hitters? And so that I think there will be some impact on that pretty quickly. Um, and I, I think you know the, the walk numbers have to come down pretty quickly. Um, but some of this stuff, you know, I, I do think the minor league development. <laughs> that's maybe not as in, as in good of a place as maybe they think. I think if they were, if the minor league system was doing a, such a great job developing pitchers, I think we would have seen a lot of pitchers in the minors put up better numbers last year. And instead, I think we see we saw a lot of guys regress. Guys like Alec Marsh, who you know has a tremendous fastball, but really struggled. ERA over seven uh, in the high minors last year. Aza Lacy, of course, you know he's been a, a mess so far. Uh, and maybe there's some, there's some back, you know, back injuries there, but uh, really just you know, he's, he's been, uh, you know, unable to throw strikes at all. And even a guy like Frank Mazzucato, I think, you know, he's looked had some promising results. Certainly not blowing anyone away yet. And then there's a lot of time. He's very young, but I think we would see some some guys kind of, you know, really emerge from that minor league system and, and put up some eye popping numbers if the minor league uh, system was really good at developing pitchers. And we haven't seen that so. Uh, we'll see. I, I'm, I'm certainly I like what I've heard out of Brian Sweeney. I think Lefty had a lot of great quotes and, and a lot of great t- takes on what Sweeney has talked about and what Zach Lowe is capable of doing. So I think I think they're on the right track. Uh, we'll have to see how quickly they can turn around this pitching staff. What's maybe the first thing we can expect to see improve with this pitching staff so early on in the season? Will it be less walks? Will it be more strikeouts? Will it be softer contact? What would you expect with a guy like Brian Sweeney, Zach Bove, working with these young guys to make the biggest change in maybe in April or May? Well, it seems like for the last year what they've really emphasized is, is throwing strikes, right? And that, that was really one of the biggest issues for the team last year. They just, you know, they're, they're hurting themselves by – not not being able to throw strikes, not only just not throwing strikes, but not able to put pitches where they want. You know, you don't want to, you know, even if it's in the strike zone, you don't want to leave pitches up in the zone when you know, a guy's going to clobber it. Um, you want you want to be able to work ahead of the count uh, and, and and kind of you know pitch to guys on your terms. And so you know that's easier said than done, but I think that's something Piccolo has recognized for a year. And for whatever reason, Cal Eldred could not you know translate that into more of a result. So we'll see if Sweeney does. And I, I'm curious to hear kind of what their plan is. To, to lower that walk rate, uh, which I think led the American League last year. So that's, that's I think, going to be the highest priority. Now, whether or not you can turn that around quickly uh, at the major league level, I'm curious to see because I'm, I'm a little skeptical. It seems like that's something that, you know, that's something that uh, you really need to work on in the, in the lower levels, you know, the ability to throw strikes. But for some of these guys, it could be, you know, 
their their uh, approach and their kind of uh, preparation and so like I said, you know, that's something that Pacola I think has talked about with, with Sweeney. And so that that could be a big advantage and maybe that you know, we are able to see some results pretty quickly there, but but certainly getting those walks down, I think that was the biggest problem. And then look for starting pitchers too, the, the first inning. I mean the first inning was a disaster uh, for the Royals and a lot of these starts. And again, that comes down to preparation. So hopefully that's something they can kinda of nip in the bud a little bit, have guys a little bit re- you know, a little more prepared for these lineups they're facing and play the matchups a little bit better as well. We're talking with Max Reaper of Royals Review. Spring training just a couple of weeks away here, but maybe one of the dampers on the mood of spring training was the news of, I want to say it was either late last week or early this week, was uh, J.J. Bacola going out and saying that, hey, you know, Hunter Dozier is going to be this team's third baseman. Are you buying it? Because, Max, did we also not hear J.J. Bacola say that he wanted to get at-bats for Ryan O'Hearn this year and find good spots for him? And, of course, he was DFA'd not much later than that. So <laughs> is this more blowing smoke up our you-know-whats of Hunter Dozier actually being the team's everyday third baseman? Or is there really a good chance that they're going to give Hunter Dozier one more go-around? Well, so yeah, I think there's a couple things going on. I think, first of all, this a lot of this is about Bobby Witt Jr., right? I think they, they want to clear the runway for Bobby Witt Jr. to play shortstop every day and get a good long look at, 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 of him at, at that shortstop position, see if he can play that uh, long term. And if he can't, well, then third base, you know, you really haven't committed someone to third base. I know Hunter Dozier's on the contract next year as well, but I feel like if he doesn't really figure it out this year, you can probably let him go with a year remaining on his contract or at least, you know, put him in a utility role at that point. Uh, but this is about, you know, giving Bobby Wood Jr. that opportunity. And so, you know, third base, who, who plays third base for this year? Well, Hunter Dozier, you know, he knows how to play third base a little bit. Not very well. And he's already on the roster. Uh, and, and there aren't a lot of other options right now pushing to the minors. So you might as well give him a chance to try to reclaim some value. You know, look, we saw it from Carlos Santana last year. He, he put up a couple good weeks that was able to convince the Seattle Mariners to give up two minor league pitchers uh, to the Royals in exchange for – Santana, if the Royals paid some of that, some of his remaining salary, and the, you know, I think that was a better deal. You know, both teams are the better off for it. If Dozier can kind of find, figure things out for a month, maybe two months, and it doesn't have to be great, but you know, something closer to, to the below replacement, level, better than the replacement level player he's been the last year or two, then I think you know maybe you get a team to bite on that if the Royals pay most of his salary the rest of the year. And you get, you know, a marginal minor leaguer. I think the Royals would take that in a heartbeat. So um, I think that's the, the hope. But if Dozier doesn't figure it out and, and it's midseason, I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of cut cut uh, bait with him at that point. Nathan Eden, I think, would be worth looking at at third base. I don't, I, I'm not as high on him as some other guys are, but I think he's done enough to at least deserve an opportunity. Uh, and he's got a nice strong arm. He's a kind of a spark plug out there. I like his energy. And so I, I, I think it'd be worth getting a look at him. So I, you know, I, I think they're going to pencil Dozier in, but I don't, I don't think there's any kind of long-term commitment where they're going to say, okay, he's our third base and through the rest of the season, and we're not going to budge off that. I think if he doesn't hit, he's going to lose his job. So uh, you know, it's going to be a matter of someone else pushing him out of that position, though. A fun question for you here. We got the great news earlier this week uh, that the Royals will be going back to their powder blue unis at least for opening day. The all-powder blues look with, of course, the powder blue pants. But if this is a limited-time edition and they only get it for one game instead of every single Sunday or maybe even on the road at times, uh, why can't the Royals just fully commit to bringing back their best (laughs) uniform they've ever had? What's the deal with this? I I don't know. I don't even like a... 
licensing thing, or it's like they just can't find enough powder to move it. I don't know. It's, it's, it's the fans have been asking for it. I mean, they went to the powder blue tops and then, then did the white pants for whatever reason. I don't know if that was supposed to be like a merging of the old with the new, mm-hmm. or if they just didn't want to go full retro. But um, I don't know. The powder blue keeps seems to be back in style. I think a couple of teams are going back to the powder blues at least on a you know Sundays, you know, on fun Sundays or home Sundays, or whatever. Um, I've seen some people want them to do the uh, the powder blues for all the road games because you know you know when the Royals wore powder blues before it was only on the road. Uh, so I, I don't know, but I, yeah, I would like to see it a little bit more than opening day. I suspect if if there's a good reaction on opening day from it, then they'll you know say we'll we'll do it you know on Sundays or Fridays or whatever. But uh, the fans are asking for at least they're they're giving us one day. But uh, yeah, yeah, it seems like we should get this a little bit more often. I think the fans like it a lot. And, you know, I think the only reason I bring that up is because last year the Royals were 13th in attendance in the American League, you know, bringing back the all-powder blues for opening day, uh, a day in which you're already going to have a pretty big crowd. It only adds an extra element to bring more fans out to the ballpark. But, Max, if you were in charge of running stadium op- operations, running those promotions, trying to get fans out the, out, of the, out to the ballpark, excuse me, and get out of that cellar of 13th, 14th, 15th in attendance in the American League, what would you do to entice the fans to come out and watch a team that, yeah, maybe not win 90 games or 95 games, but to get maybe the fan support behind a young team that maybe two, three years down the line is the next true core of Royals baseball? Well, first of all, I think I know it's not completely in their hands. They got to find a way to get the team on TV more with the, with the yes. Valley situation. I know the, the company that owns Valleys is in some financial distress, maybe going bankrupt. Maybe there's a way to work the rights out so they can, you know, get it to another sell, another company to own the rights, or maybe MLB will buy back the rights. But uh, we need to get the, the, the Royals on more TVs in Kansas City. So that's first of all. I know that's not really completely in the Royals' hands at this point. Uh, but the other thing, you know, the team does have to be creative about getting people to the stadium. And look, they're, it's a bad team, and it's, a, it's an ownership group that um, hasn't really spent a lot of money this year on payroll, which I get. I, I kind of get what they're doing. They're going... They're going young, uh, but you got to give fans. If, if you're not going to spend money on the team, you got to kind of lower the price for fans to go to games, right? And and maybe you know that's through lower ticket prices, but maybe that's through being creative. You know, with I know they offer dollar dog nights, but maybe doing more of those, more, more, more of those kind of promotions where families can afford to come to games. I remember when uh, Mark Adonacio and uh, bought the Brewers. He had I can't remember the exact promotion was, but I think it was like you know a dollar beer night. Uh, to get fans in the gate, and you know, that's that's a way to get fans in the, in, you know, to the stadium. I don't know if you necessarily want twenty thousand drunks at the stadium, but you know, something to something to kind of get get a little buzz, so show that you uh, build some goodwill among the fan base. I mean, you are trying to rally support for downtown stadium. Cut prices somehow, you know, have parking free one night. I don't know something like that, where you're showing fans that you're making an effort to to lower the burden on them. Uh, especially with the team not doing well, uh, because I think people do are going to want to see these kids. I mean, Vinny Pascantino is a lot of fun to watch. I think he's going to be a fan favorite. Bobby Wood Jr. is is, is a really unique talent out there. Um, I, I think these kids, are, you know, MJ Melendez has a really good approach. These kids are bringing energy to the game. I think they are going to be a lot of fun to watch. Uh, hopefully, people aren't tuning out just because they're going to be buried in the standings. I hope they're still tuning in and, and at least hoping that these, this young core is going to be part of the next great Royals team. 
We're talking with Max Reaper of Royals Review right now on the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Max, last couple questions for you here. Uh, we're going into spring training here in a couple of weeks. Of course, with such a young team, there's not many solidified spots, but if there were some positions on the field or even in the rotation in the bullpen, where are you most excited to watch some of these position battles in surprise here in a couple of weeks? Yeah, I think they are pretty solid with their roster. I don't feel like there's going to be a whole lot of positional battles. I think Kyle Isbell is probably going to be the opening day center fielder, and I think Drew Waters is going to play in right, but I think they're going to have to earn it. Uh, and, you know, we could see, I think there's going to be, it's going to be pretty fluid all, all season. And you'll see Edward Oliveira in the outfield as well. He'll DH, he'll play some right. You know, Waters will move over to center on occasion. Um, so I'm curious to see, you know, how well those guys play in the spring. Obviously, if Waters or Isbell has a miserable spring training, that could really jeopardize their roster spot, but. Um, I think they want the Royals want to get a good long look at what those guys can do. And so this is going to be kind of their year to sink or swim. Second base is probably, I think, the, the position that's probably most up for grabs right now. I think Michael Massey, it's his job to lose, uh, but he could lose it. I think Nicky Lo- I think it's why Nicky Lopez is still on the roster right now. I know the White Sox have shown a lot of interest in him to fill their second base job, uh, but I think the Royals want to hang on to him and, and see if Massey – uh, can kind of go out and earn that second base job in spring training, and if he does, maybe you see a maybe you see a trade for Lopez near the end of spring training uh, if they feel confident in Nasty going forward. Uh, but I think that that is going to be an interesting competition. And then what do they do with Lopez if they do keep him? Is he going to play second base because you know him and Nasty are both left-handed, so it's not really a good for a platoon situation. You want Bobby Wood Jr. to play shortstop every day, so I don't know where Lopez is going to play. I guess uh, third base is a possibility, even though it's not a, really his natural position. But you've got Hunter Dozier there, who's, who's obviously not a very good defender. Lopez is a good defender, so that's a possibility. Uh, so, and, and then the, the, I don't, I'm curious to see how they, they work out the catching situation. Um, it sounds like Salvi's going to DH about a quarter of the time. That's what he did last year. MJ Melendez will catch on occasion, but he's also going to play left field a lot. Uh, and it sounds like they want to carry a third catcher, whether or not that's like Freddie Fermin, the 27-year-old who won uh, MVP of the Venezuelan Winter League. Or if it's someone they bring from outside the organization, some veteran. They talked about, um, you know, getting a defensive first catcher who can handle pitching uh, really well. Um, we'll we'll see if they make an acquisition like that. But I feel like the the roster is pretty well set. I mean, the bench. I think you have to figure out a little bit. I think that's why they brought in Johan Camargo and Matt Duffy, the veteran infielders, on minor league deals to see if one of them can win a bench job. But uh, other than that, I think this is pretty much a set roster. You know, with Vinny Pasquantino at first. We'll see Massey at second, I think. Witt at short. Hunter Dozier at third. Salvi behind the plate most of the time. MJ with Melendez in left. Uh, Kyle Isbell in center and Drew Waters in right with Edward Oliveira's DHing most of the time uh, with some time in the outfield as well. So, uh, you know, that's a pretty young lineup. I mean, it's a lot of 26 and under guys. So I'm pretty excited to see what they can do. And not everyone's going to make it, but uh, at least I think gives you a lot more hope for the future than a couple of 35-year-old veterans at the end of their career. Last question for you here, Max. You gave us the full rundown, or at least a prediction of the opening day lineup, one through nine. But can you give me the opening day rotation? I know there's a lot of solidified spots when you think about Zach Greinke and Jordan Lyles. But maybe who are the other three in that rotation? And maybe go in order here. Who's the opening day starter? Who's the five man? How would you assemble this rotation for Kansas City in 2023? Yeah, I think Brady Singer is your opening day starter, hopefully with some sort of long-term deal. Uh, in hand by then, I'm so optimistic they can get something done uh, and avoid arbitration at least, at the very least. 
but I think he's going to be the opening day starter. Zach Greinke, uh, back in the fold, I'm sure he'll be the, the number two guy. And then Jordan Lyles, you know, they signed to a two-year deal. Should be the number three man. I think Daniel Lynch probably has the inside track to be the fourth starter. Um, I think it's kind of his job to lose, so I think he has to have a good spring. Um, and, and we'll see, but uh, I think he's got the inside track. I still like the potential he has, uh, and I think he could really benefit from the new pitching coach uh, team they have in place. Then the fifth starter is going to be kind of interesting. I think I still think Brad Keller has kind of the inside track. Um, I think if he can kind of recapture what he showed a couple years ago, and it wasn't that long ago he was a pretty solid pitcher, then I think he becomes a pretty um, attractive trade asset that perhaps some contender in July might be willing to give you a prospect for. So with that kind of potential, I think he's worth giving you know, 10, 15 starts to see what he can do. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of, I think, fluidity with that rotation as the year goes on. And Chris Bubich is going to get starts. Jonathan Heasley is going to get starts. I think Max Castillo is going to get starts. We could see Jackson Kolar get starts. You know, I think they're going to have to you know, figure out what they have with him eventually. So, uh, you know, there's uh, we talked about fan graphs and their, their projections. Uh, there was an article by Dan Zaborski uh, projecting the Royals a couple uh, months ago or a couple weeks ago. And, he's, you know, he talked about there's not much difference between kind of the top, the, the top of the rotation for the Royals and, like, the ninth and tenth pitchers they have, uh, so, and which, you know, that's kind of damning with faint praise a little bit. But, you know, they have depth. Uh, they have a lot of options. And I, I think it's good because, you know, we've seen the last couple of years, they get to August and they're kind of running on fumes looking for anybody to give them a start. And, you know, in addition to the names I mentioned, you know, Ryan Yarbrough, who they signed uh, from the Rays, is certainly capable of starting on Hell Zerpa who looked really impressive in the few starts he's gotten. I think he can give them some starts. So they're going to have a lot of good options, uh, and, and that's, that's going to be really good because I don't think they want to have these young pitchers going 150, 160, 170 innings. Zach Granke, I think, is going to be pretty limited in his innings as well. And so you want a lot of different options for those August, you know, once you hit August on the calendar and, and you're really looking for, uh, for as many arms as you can get. Well, Max, thanks so much for your time, as always, and we'll talk to you closer to spring training. All right, appreciate it, man. There he goes. That's Max Reaper of Royals Review giving us the full rundown on the boys in blues. We're just weeks away now from spring training in about a month and a half, a little over a month and a half from the start of the regular season. But, of course, all focuses on this Sunday night between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles. Kickoff will be at 5.30 on Fox. Again, the Eagles a one-and-a-half-point favorite. The over-under of the game is set right now at 50-and-a-half. Before we sign off for the final time tonight, let's go over some scores around the league, starting with the NBA. The Cleveland Cavaliers moved to 35-22 and on the year after a 113-85 win over the 14-42 and Pistons. The Cavs covered the eight-and-a-half-point spread. The under also hit, which was set at 217-and-a-half. The Wizards moved to four games under 500 after a 118-104 win over the Hornets. Charlotte falls to 15-41 and on the year. The Wizards covered the three-and-a-half-point spread. The under also hit, which was set at 235-and-a-half. The game that was on here at the Barstool Sportsbook and Hollywood Casino was Boston and Philly. The Celtics win at home, 106-99. They cover the two and a half points spread the under also hit which was set at 227 and a half the Miami Heat moved to 29 and 25 after a five point win over the Pacers who fall to 25 and 30 the Pacers did cover the six and a half point spread the over also hit 
which was set at 225 and a half. The Raptors win 112.98 over the 14-win Spurs. They cover the 10.5 point spread. The under also hit, which was set at 232 and a half. Sacramento continues their impressive year with their 30th win on the year after a nail-biting 130-128 win over the Houston Rockets. The Rockets fall to 13 and 41 on the year, but they do cover the 8.5 point spread. The over also hit which was set at 237 and a half. The Timberwolves up 28 over Utah with 644 left to go in the fourth quarter. Jazz were an eight and a half point favorite going into the game, likely not to cover that spread barring any drastic change. The over under was set at 232 and a half. Dallas in their first game with Kyrie Irving up 51-35 in LA over the Clippers. Kyrie has 13 points on 10 shots in the game so far. Uh, the spread in that game was 8.5 in favor of the Clippers. Uh, Over-under was at 220.5. Portland up 51-45 on the Warriors with 6.20 left in the second quarter. Trailblazers were a 2.5 point favor. The over-under at 234.5. In college basketball, power 5 uh, around the nation. Alabama up 74-55 over Florida with 8.15 left to go in the game. Baylor up 5 on Oklahoma with 4.48 left to go in the second half. Mississippi State up 12 on LSU with 1.12 to go in the game. Some five Finals from earlier. Michigan wins by 21 over Nebraska. Syracuse over Florida State by 9. Georgia Tech wins by 2 over Notre Dame. Tennessee falls on a buzzer beater to Vanderbilt, so the sixth-ranked Vols surely to drop big time in the top 25. Boston College wins 82-76 over Virginia Tech. West Virginia pulls off a shocker in Morgantown with a five-point win over Iowa State. Oklahoma State wins on a buzzer beater against Texas Tech, 71-68. And Wisconsin wins 79-74 over Penn State in overtime in the nhl the only final from tonight the rangers win 4-3 over the canucks and the only active game with 822 left in the third period the dallas stars up three to one on the minnesota wild well that will wrap up our two and a half hour show a little bit of a later start tonight so i want to give a big thank you to Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network. He joins us every Wednesday from 8 to 9, talking to the Royals, Chiefs, college basketball. Uh, if you like listening to Joel, don't worry, he won't be going away anytime soon. Also, a big thank you to Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com. And, of course, a big thank you to Max Reaper of Royals Review. And also, much love to Dylan Michaels back on the board, who always does a fantastic job making sure everything runs smoothly on the show. That wraps up another edition of the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I've been your host, Jack Johnson, out here live at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. We'll be right back out here next Wednesday at 7 p.m. You enjoy the weekend and the game, Kansas City.